This episode is brought to you by the Insta Sommelier Medical App. Oh my god! I've been hit and run! So you're going to the hospital emergency room. Mom! Well, I've got bad news for you. You're probably going to be put on a waiting list after Granny's goiter, Little Chad's tummy ache, and the guy with kidney stones screaming for the sweet release of death. Instead, take your crushed pancreas to the emergency healing solution used by highfalutin ascot wearers just like you. The cultured and refined service that isn't about experimental medicine. It relies on suffering's universal solvent since higher civilization began, fine wine. When you have a medical crisis, just pull out your phone. Uh, you use your good hand there, sir. Then pull up the Insta Sommelier medical app. Sign in. Uh, yeah, it's uh, probably in your email. Did you change the password? Try the retrieve password link. It's you got. Then just 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 tap the get help icon. You got location services enabled, right? Immediately, Insta Sommelier will dispatch a pharmaceutical professional to triage the damage and render aid in the form of a fleet of tastings of the world's finest wines, relative to your subscription tier. You'll be feeling better and back on your feet. You'll be feeling better. And thank you, Insta Sommelier Medical App, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. This episode is brought to you by the support of generous listeners just like you. You can learn how to be one of them at patreon.com slash rereadingwolf. And thank you, listener patrons, for supporting the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning. The following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread. A Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We don't pretend that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We want to understand them in as much detail as possible, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Welcome back, Craig. Hello, hello. It's good to talk to you again. Yeah, at I last, feel like even last. though we've been talking a lot, not everybody has been hearing us talk a lot. So yeah, <laughs> we yeah, did take been... some breaks, but we've there's been more behind the scenes. We're, we're a few episodes ahead, so that's right. Good. We've been downright chatty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mentioned to you that uh, it's this. The job has changed since I started it. Mm-hmm. Where as before, you know, I would go in, I would, you know, get down. I was a, I'm a technical writer in IT, and I. Uh, we just, you know, do my work and go. And now with this new job, it's more of a, a product owner. And it just, it's not that it takes up my time. It sucks up my attention. I'm just always, normally I would be thinking about, you know, what we're going to talk about. I'd be thinking about <laughs> these these uh, communications from listeners. I'd be thinking about the chapter we're talking about. And now I find myself always thinking about that and it's just wearying it's a shame when work actually requires work i know <laughs> i did not sign up for this i know yeah that's that's what i'm wishing for the future you know you get that universal basic income and then everybody can just sit around and <laughs> podcast about their favorite special uh, the, ant, writer. the the non what is it the the, the uh non-scarcity society exactly what we need. exactly yeah. strauss wrote some good novels sort of that that post singularity post scarcity kinds of stuff so He's, yeah, he's, yeah, he's a good suggestion. 
Okay, so we'll let's go ahead and get started here. All right, lots of comments because we had a lot of time. Yeah. Or comments to accrue. So, yeah. Jump yeah, in. definitely. So we've got, uh, well, and also a lot of people had a lot of thoughts just about this chapter as well. So True. it's like a huge wave. Maybe maybe they were all having it, these, you know, their, uh, their wolf itch was was just building up and building yeah. up and now they've yeah. letting us have so it. We're usually, we try to be good about making sure to at least mention sort of anything that somebody spent some time on. So, but, but this time, if we miss somebody, we apologize. Yeah. Or, yeah I, I'm going to tell you that um, I've kind of collected the, uh, the stuff from, uh, you know, when we were dormant and quiet and, and the stuff that, you know, we get from emails and stuff that don't necessarily have to do with a specific chapter. And maybe we'll do a little, um, a special episode just on that because there's a lot of them. There and are a long. lot. Of, yep. Yeah. Yep. So let's see. First, uh, on Reddit, Neil Smith. Neil at the cross. He says, welcome back. I'm glad to hear you two are well and happy to have another episode. Well, Gosh, that's heartening, and we live. and not and not all that different from everyone else. Everyone is very understanding, very enthusiastic to be able to continue on this little journey of ours, trying to crawl along the bottom of this story and pick up whatever odds and ends we can. So he, uh, he says, "You express confusion on Marin lying about the people present." Uh, that is uh, when Severian says, weren't there three of you a minute ago? And Marin goes off on a, a lot of woo-woo talk about inhuman spirits flying in the night. He says, I think it's much simpler than you make it out to be. And that's what you're tripping over. My take is that Marin is an inexperienced witch offered as an assistant to the Kamehian, and Marin is trying to show off. I think mm-hmm. Marin is playing on the witch's mystique in the same way that Severian plays on that of the torturers at times. Hmm. Yeah. You know, you know, like like when Severian, you know, tries to manipulate the innkeeper in Nessus, and later he'll try to daunt the lake people with him being a yeah. guild master, right? Could be. And she definitely does kind of have that attitude of like, I'm gonna say mysterious things and I'm gonna, <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's always got she's always got her hand up. She's the student who <laughs> is ready to talk about all that she knows. And then and and the Kamean. She's a little bit rude. She is always putting her down. She can't, because she's like that, the, the Kamehian can't resist correcting her, yeah. right? He says, Marin may be used to fooling people. Severian is a little too literal-minded for that, and Dork is a bit too savvy. I take Marin's look at the Kamehian sort of saying, uh, this is the way you do it, right? Uh, and the lack of response is no doubt due to the Kamehian realizing that no one is fooled. The Kamehian eventually makes fun of her, and she gives up and admits Hildurin is there. And the Kamehian is more likely to think that people who just show up at this time must be here for a reason. I think that Marin's comment about three seeing two, two seeing three, is one of those off-the-cuff things that a fake psychic would say. However, thematically, it's interesting because, because Wolf likes to take these offhand comments and make them true on a different level, like Severian's earlier s- statement in the book that, quote, time has the property that conserves truth by making our lies into truth. Yeah. Which, mm-hmm. yeah. So which of the two is hidden? Both of the men, Severian by his cloak in the dark, Hildegrin by the, uh, the roof in the dark. On the other hand, people borrowing a human seeming would be Jalenta being visible at, with an artificial appearance, and the Kamean, who we will find is not strictly human, but in disguise. Related to this 
the idea of all the witches wearing masks, which is an interesting one, but not one I quite know what to do with. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I think it's certainly all plausible. Um, yeah. and, and I think, you know, our confusion was just trying to figure out what's the best interpretation of that. So yeah, I mean, the simpler approach, may, Occam's razor may be best in that. It's yeah, it, it, it's contrary to my inclinations as everyone knows, but maybe that's it. Maybe it's, it's just, maybe it's just Marin showing off. Maybe mm -hmm. so. Mm -hmm. I, it's not like I can come up with a better explanation. No. And it definitely adds to the weirdness. I mean, that's one thing, one thing Wolf often does is have somebody explain something incorrectly or just in a different way. Mm -hmm. Really? I feel like it's to add that extra layer of not quite being sure what's going on. Um, but it may also be there f just for the effect rather than necessarily for the clue. Right. Quite so much. Yeah. And let's see. Neil says, I agree with Craig. That's Severian. The author is giving his opinion that the witches ran because of the danger of being caught in the incident and dying like Hildegrin. I believe that's what Severian thinks, but he might not be correct. It may be as simple as, you know, they were there to perform a task once ended, especially poorly. They had no reason to stay and left. Mm -hmm. Yep. Good will or be. there may be more to it. And Wolf is trying to draw our attention to something, but I can't tell what. Overall, I don't think the surface action is difficult to understand here, but there's a lot of implications that I feel uh, that I'm not quite catching. Yeah, I feel the same way. Yep. I don't, yeah, I mean, obviously we know, Severian feels like they're at the end of the of the book. He feels like there's, it has something to do with the fact of who the Apupun Chow turned out to be, which maybe they didn't know. I don't know. We'll have to, other people have some ideas on that. But that's a pretty good nuanced and humble take that I can appreciate. Mm -hmm. And also, of course, it won't satisfy me, so... <laughs> Uh, let's see. First person drug jugular also on Reddit. Uh, remember, we uh, express gratitude that the play is at least over. And IPJ says, the play isn't over. The play is <laughs> never over. When you're covering Earth a decade from now, we will still be in the play. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> very true. Yeah, I'm afraid that's true. Yeah, we'll have to rehash the play in Earth. Wouldn't it be nice if by that time I can understand the meaning of what's going on in the final act with Nod chasing Jahi around? But yeah, regarding the last chapter of IPJ, he says, this whole scene takes place on a raked stage, a slanted roof, and Hildegrin is hiding backstage over the apex, waiting for his entrance. If you imagine Snoopy's doghouse, Snoopy is lying on top, basically where the backdrop would be, and Hildegrin is stuck behind that. Yeah. He talks about some things that we're going to talk about in a bit in this chapter. And he has some ideas about stuff we've discussed from the book of the short sun and expresses an interesting theory. Uh, go to uh, the badger again, post and Reddit to check it out. He seems to agree with Neil that Marin is mostly showing off in front of the command. Right. He says the witch's tower is just like a wolf story. All the unnecessary parts of the structure have been stripped away and it keeps humming along. Regarding the command saying death is nothing, and for that reason you must fear it, what is more to be feared, he says, that misunderstanding by taking a word in drastically different ways, nothing is both inconsequential and also oblivion, is extremely Shakespearean behavior. It's all a play, you guys. <laughs> yeah, could well be. By the way, I love his handle, first person jugular. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Uh, let's see, also on Reddit, Mike Farrar. Uh, from me. 
is offering a curiositus earthus. He says, with each reread, it's become more evident to me that the Stonetown incident is a deliberate assassination of Hildegrin by Marin and the Kamehameha. And he says this is on order of the Autark. So that at least decomplicates the different motivations in this scene. Hildegrin, the Autark, which is Baudelaire. He goes on. When he comes to ask for help in raising Apapunchau, he's isolated and alone, almost at their mercy. And he thinks it's because Hildegrin witnessed Severian's resurrection in the duel. He says, Hildegrin is an early believer in the power and importance of Severian, unlike other eyewitnesses like Agia and Agilus, who believe Severian survived through deception. Vodalus doubts Hildegrin, but he probably told the Autark on the steel anyway. The Autark and Neri are concerned that word will reach out to the true enemies of the new sun. And so the witches are deployed and Hildegrin is neutralized. It's evident even on the first read that Hildegrin is Vodalus's most capable lieutenant and his continued presence in the group would complicate Severian and the old Autark's later capture. He's too capable. He knows too much. He's got to go. So silencing Hildegrin is one purpose of the Stonetown incident. And the other, assessing Severian by absorbing Apupunchao. Absorbing, that's an interesting theory about what happens. Severian demonstrates his power to the command. Likely, he's even the conduit through which she draws power to summon Apupunchao. Regardless, Severian passes her test and also serves as a cunningly employed weapon against Hildegrin. Hmm. So that's that's one of the puppet master type readings where everything is here. I mean, to... It's all a plan, yeah. man. Right, right. And I, the part I don't buy particularly there is that this was a way to get rid of Hildegrin, just because that depends on Severian getting close enough to... Yeah, to blow everything up. Blow and, up. And Hildegrin jumping the gun. Although it was yeah. inevitable that so Hild that Severian was going to get close enough, right? He because Maybe? Hildegrin's plan I mean, yeah. was to help him haul Apopunchal back to Vodalus. Yeah, it just it seems like enlisting strange witches to do a time travel ritual to get rid of a guy is is a quite overly elaborate. <laughs> well, yeah, there's a lot of other ways you can you can assassinate him. He's he's out yeah. and about. He's at the botanical gardens all the time right yep yeah I don't, but the rest of it i mean not that i, I gotta admit not that i necessarily find it plausible that the cumaean is using severian as the thing but at least those motivations are that more sort of weird mystical and you know conspiratorial background thing maybe i mean we know as much or as little about what that would mean as anything else but but yeah the hildegan i don't know i mean i i I get where he's going, mm -hmm. uh, but it's a few few steps too <laughs> far away from what, what we actually see, I feel like. Well, you know, Mike also thinks that the witches serve as a kind of CIA or, or mm -hmm. probably more properly a Russian KSB, an organization in charge of spying, info gathering and assassination. And yeah. he thinks he took this role. He says, uh, after, quote, Imar expelled women from the torturers guild, the female torturers uh, were transferred from their torturer duties to the secret police and the brutality and promiscuous that could be explained by the fact that they are alphas with a license to kill each as lethal and randy as 007 randy is <laughs> such a great word anytime it's used that yeah. way it's just so it is, no, no, cool yeah. and wrong and there's no <laughs> well sort yeah very yeah. good very good yeah. point yeah i love that
I, I, the idea of, of 007 describing him as Randy is, is pretty good. You could describe Severian as Randy also, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I, and from now on I shall, um, he says that quote, the witch's tower's purpose and nature of the Kameyan elude me. Uh, he has some short sun ideas as well. A lot of people like the idea and direction that Mike was going in without necessarily endorsing it. And, yeah. you know, that's not a defeat, Mike. I, I used to chuckle at the idea that the body in the graveyard in chapter one could be Thecla or Severian's mother. And, and now I've come around to believing that it was, in a sense, both. And that the requirement that it be these people is pivotal to the novel. And so, frankly, this is the way great canonical theories are born or in the case of many of mine, are stillborn. So, and speaking of, uh, Neil Smith said, I agree that about the form that the witches have taken, kind of a Matahari guild, the masks may be something like a high-tech mask that would let you impersonate someone, like the agents that Shields had, at least at one time. But the masks, like so many things on Earth, are old, antiquated, and don't function as well as they used to. <laughs> I think he's he's talking about a uh, a Marin reference in mm. Short Sun. Yeah, yeah. Christopher Taylor says, "I also like this line of thought without necessarily buying into it wholesale. The big question I have is." What exactly is the relationship between Hildegrin and Vodalus? Does Hildegrin work for Vodalus or does he work with Vodalus? As you say, he comes across a bit more competent than the rest of Vodalus's lackeys, but yeah. he also feels a bit more of a free agent. Of course, that could be just because we get to spend more time with him on the page than the rest of Vodalari. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think he doesn't work for Vodalus exclusively because he has a business card, <laughs> but he seems to be one of those consultants that Vodalus relies on heavily. He's, he's covering a lot of territory between Nessus and the Stone Town. I, I've already uh, said that I think Talos and Baldanders are working for him. I, I think that I think they are the spies that were sent to watch Severian and that Vodalus says locks track of him after Nessus. But of course, I think Talos is working for some other unnamed person as well, someone capable of knowing that Severian definitely will be with them at the play. Uh, Malrubius, maybe the Undyne, I don't know. Hmm. So Hildegrin could be working for others just as well. He has a storied past. Uh, I'd have liked to have seen some stories about him, but you know, my experience regarding Adillo makes me believe that if there had been anything peculiar about Hildegrin, Wolf wouldn't reveal it in a short story. So... I see. Regarding Mike's theory, Christopher says, the question of what the Vodalari might tell the Megatherians about Severian is also moderated by the question of how much the Vodalari are consciously engaged with the new sun question versus how much they're just useful idiots being manipulated. Mm -hmm. That's actually, uh, that, that, that's, that's a good point. Um, but, you know, the the Megatherians probably have spies on Vodalus's team just as well as the Autarch is using, um, you know, him as a as a pawn as well. Yeah, I would imagine so. But yeah. it just—I know it sounds weird to say that the cleaner option makes more sense in a wolf story, but but just to have the Vodalari be dumb and good schools, <laughs> it it works better. It's like you've got all this otherworldly conspiratorial stuff going on that it it 
Plus, it fits to me the sort of thematic of of Severian saying, like, you know, I was set on this quest because I loved the idea of Vodalus, but I didn't know what he really meant. And it was just that right. you know, he was sort of like a false image of something that was actually something bigger that I wanted to to become. That makes a little bit more thematic sense over the whole thing to me than, than but- seeing them as, yeah, super in-depthly whatever. But I mean, they are... You know, the Vodalus does work with the Megatherians in the end, right? I mean, right. he's got the 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 Ashians are are connected to him, and um, so yeah. By the end of Citadel, there is some wiggle room, to yeah, make them yeah. Out to be more than more than they seem like, yeah. Well, you, just the Undyne complicates everything you want to believe about the Megatherians, regardless of what it is you believe. She saves yeah. Severian. She goes and encounters him and says, you know, what, what do you want from us, from me? He, she says, just your love. We want you to love. We, yeah. what, that's, you know, that's a, that's a word that can mean a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Um, it could mean, you know, want, we, what we want is for you to worship us. We want you to, we want to enslave yep. you. Yep. Um, you know, we want you to let us worship you. Um, Anyway, they and I have a feeling it's probably would be all of those things. Yeah, you know, it's like it's because what they represent is this thing that yeah I don't think the Megatherians think they're wrong or evil. I think they're just no, no right. they're misled in what they think is good, um, and they want to control humanity. They might say it's for everyone's better benefit. Just like you know, Ashians don't think that they're evil people. It's just that the you know community is more important than the individual kind of. Thing. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, well. Typhon doesn't think he's evil. He's right. He's now, he's he, just the, the the most natural leader in the world. Powerful. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So. From from his comments, uh, Mike obviously thinks that the Kamean is the Camoena that the Herodules mentioned in Sword of the Lictor. Who does it? Does look to me like that uh, person is one of their peers. And I thought, well, that's an interesting thought. Maybe we should just consider that when we get there. But then uh, Craig, uh, Christopher Taylor said, Carmentus is another name for the historical Chimaean Sybil. So I don't think there's too much significance to the alternate name used by the Herodules beyond underlying the historical connection. I, I think it might be more revealing than Christopher thinks. It could reveal something about the witch's association and interstructure. Carmentus was the Chimerian sibyl, not the Chimerian sibyl, but she was a sibyl. And Carmenta was the Roman goddess of childbirth, and that ropes in Camoena, who is also uh, related to childbirth. I, I, I think my intuition to hold off until Sword of Lictor was <laughs> the best choice. Yeah. But Christopher also says, Severian places her in the pro-New Sun camp, along with Aniri, which indicates to me that she would do nothing to actually aid or advance the cause of the Vodalari. Well, well maybe, I mean, but the, uh, the Autarch is technically doing things to uh, advance the cause of the Vodalari in a way. So, yeah. no. And it, because, you know, they're working for him and they're working for the new son. They don't know it, but they are. Now, uh, Christopher Taylor has his own thoughts. Okay. He says, let's start with the first question to be read in a Jerry Seinfeld voice. What's the <laughs> deal with witches? <laughs> Whatever the witches are doing, it seems reasonably clear that it is something to do with investigating timelines. 
The Kamean, of course, is named for a famous oracle. A likely possibility is that they are somehow checking out alternative pasts and futures, seeing what causes lead to and what effects and possibly vice versa. I, I kind of agree with this, as I think we'll see in this episode. He says, I've always wondered what exactly ties the witches to their tower. Severian's description of its decrepit state seems very appropriate for a folkloric witch, perhaps, but not a futuristic cabal occupying an influential position in the state. If the witches are using something that was located in the tower prior to its destruction that cannot be relocated and cannot be replicated elsewhere, that would explain their position. Well, one thing, Craig, I think uh, actually does apply and what that exists in the Citadel can't be moved are those tunnels. And it could be yeah. that they are making use of that to their own ends. Yep. Especially if the tunnels are how time travel works and that's somehow how the Cumaean does her oracling is. Or one other tool that she does for her yep. oracling, right? Yep. Yep. Then that would that would maybe make sense. But yeah, otherwise the tower is he's right. It's more that sort of folklore witch, but mm -hmm. doesn't really have anything to do with the sort of Greek oracle aspect that that she seems to have. That having her cave, that for the Cumaean seems right, but but yeah, it's again, it's like what's the line between the witches and the Cumaean? I don't know. Right. Uh, Christopher goes on. He says, I don't know exactly what it is that the Kamean is watching when Severian visits the tower, but observation of the mov movement of animals is key to many forms of classical augury. Well, that's good. And uh, also, he says, isn't there somewhere where Thecla describes that some elderly aunt of hers keeping hairless rats as pets? The the parallel to the Kamean seems too blatant to be meaningless, but I really don't know what to make of it right now. <laughs> I can relate. It was uh, Chatelaine Thalia's hairless rats, by the way. Uh, Severian mentions them in the antechamber. He, then he goes on, Anywho, reading the Kamean as a sibyl provides a clear explanation of what the witches are doing with the babies they receive from the torturers. Christopher, <laughs> no. Hey, it's not Chris who did it. It's, <laughs> it's those ancient <laughs> Which, yeah. So he says, Severian, if I recall correctly, says that girl infants are given to the witches. He does not say given to raise, just given. Yep. I feel pretty confident that the majority, at least, of said infants are then used as subjects of augury. Slice them dice them, put them in a prophecy. <laughs> <sighs> it makes wow. sense that it's kind of hovering there as a possibility. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah it, it's a very ominous possibility, but yeah. it's hard because too, at the same time, Marin seems like, well, here's a young witch. So <laughs> we do have one example of somebody growing up. So yeah. a possible example. Yeah. But he's like he says, not all of them, but some of them. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And he's, uh, this leads him to his next point. He says, in a prior thread, I identified Severian's sister as Marin, but I no longer think so. This will be good, Craig. He says, at least not directly. Severian's sister died long before the narrative of the new son even opens. Severian learns that his is a twin name when he meets young Severian and his sister Severa, 
except of course, he never actually meets Severa. She is already dead and appears on the page as only a psychic echo in the Alzabo. Similarly, if Elder Severian's sister appears on the page, it is only via Alzabo. Marin could well have partaken of her, explaining her identification as Severian's sister in the short sun, but she could well not be the only one. I do have a problem with how this opens us up to everyone is Severian's sister theories, which I would hate every bit as much as I hate everyone is Severian theories. But unfortunately, I think the situation is pretty incontrovertible. <laughs> yes, Christopher is wow. finding himself yeah. where I find myself often in theorizing. Right? Yeah, it, that does open a huge Pandora's box of possibilities for if what if somebody ate somebody then that's why they seem like this person and oh oh my god that just becomes well so I, complicated yeah i uh, to be honest I, that's how i think in one instance at least is how severian's mother uh, uh you know takes part in this story so yeah, i mean our main character is now two people so yeah it, yeah it's it's always there i think as a is a possible implication. Sure. Yeah. And moving on, he says, uh, Christopher says, reading the parallels between Severa and the elder Severian sister is stronger than just one being an indicator of mere existence of the other. Uh, it also adds an extra resonance to Alzabo Severa being one of the few Eidolons present at the trial in Earth to speak directly. The role of the witches as augurs also explains why they are regarded as counterparts of the torturers. Both are, as Long Sun labels the augurs, butchers. And actually, you know, it, butcher is inherent in the name, in the word Madachin. So, okay, Craig, the idea, I got to tell you, the idea that Severian's sister is dead and that all the instances of her are eidolons or echoes is actually incredibly appealing to me. I hope Christopher doesn't think this is undercutting him. His sister is dead. She parallels Severa, whom Severian encounters through the Alzabo. Valeria is his sister. He encounters her while looking for a dog. She says, I am all the sisters we breed and all the sons. Craig, how many people are in Valeria? Mm -hmm. Maybe this is why Severian considers her such a suitable bride when he becomes Autark. She becomes Autark. We always consider her to be a faux Autark because she didn't have, you know, didn't take the Alzabo. But maybe not. Severian tells Odillo that Valeria did survive the flood. He says, she has survived. Believe me, I feel it. I still really like the everyone is uh, Severian theories, but I can't get away from them. And I've long yielded to the Severian's mom is everywhere <laughs> theory. Yeah. But I've been inching towards Severian's sister is everywhere, you know, in reading this. Valeria, Marin, uh, maybe Morwenna, Odilla for sure. Uh, maybe it's true. If we can only nail down a story to nail this all together, we kind of discussed at one point, well, maybe you know, there's some sort of timey-wimey thing so that Valeria is inside Severian's head when he becomes yeah. Autark. And, but, you know, I can't figure out how that would work. But it would explain why Severian suddenly decides, I'm going to go <laughs> go after Valeria. Yep. Uh, Christopher also thinks it's pretty clear that Aniri can't 
be a Herodule in the matter of Barbatus and Famulimus. And I think uh, the Chameleon is likewise distinct, he says. Uh, he notes that Baldanders says that uh, that Famulimus and Barbatus only live for a dozen years or so, and they appear to be around for longer in linear time due to their role as time travelers. Aniri's apparent long existence, however, could not be explained this way because he would not be able to maintain his function managing the Commonwealth in this way. And the Kameyan could potentially manage, but it is just seems somehow more satisfying to compare her to Aniri than to Famulimus and company, he says. So uh, Christopher is going to note that Asapego is also a Harajul traveling. So, you know, maybe uh, Aniri could be one of those, right? Maybe mm -hmm. that's, that could explain his long life. Yeah. Um, also, I mean, let's think about it. Uh, Aniri could still be like the others and only live 20 years or so. Uh, Christopher seems to assume that Aniri is just always around, but I think it's very possible that he's only around when people see him. And he was around for, you know, Emar. And he's around a lot more now because we're watching the end stage with Severian. I'm just saying. Yeah. But it could be more like Asapego than uh, Barbados and Famulimus. Christopher also thinks, quote, that Aniri and the Chameleon have a lot more in common with the Megatherians than the Herodules, and they could well be Megatherians that have defected from the Erebus Abia camp. Although I should note that I also support the proposal that the Megatherians are themselves rebellious Yasadis. Neri seems to have thrown his lot fully in with the Commonwealth. The Kameyan may well be acting more as an independent consultant for hire. And that seems to fit with what she says in this chapter. Uh, so anyway, I, I have my own dog in this hunt uh, because I have my own ideas about the Megatherian. So I'm going to let you take the lead. Yeah, I, especially on the idea that they're somehow in line with the Megatherians just doesn't make sense because that's not the way they explain themselves. And yeah, it just, it, it goes in such a different direction. It's also apparently not how the Megatherians work, like to, to sort of send these direct people to do it. So, um, I mean, cause we've got the Undine who's doing her thing and there's always the suggestion that they're like, wait, these cosmic forces behind the scenes rather than the sort of very enigmatic teacher kind of thing. Mm -hmm. They seem much more about, yeah, control rather than, I mean, yes, you could say that the higher duels are controlling in the sense of who they help. Like, you know, do they stop giving Baldanders tips or something like that? But that's very different from basically, I guess, mind control, like we see with the Ash. Right. It's already weird enough to try to sort of think about how the higher duels are connected to the rest of the high clan but then to suggest that they might also be megatherians they could all be one one people one big thing yeah yeah it's i like the idea of thinking that like the megatherians are are just like another faction of the hieros um don't think that's how wolf has set things up and i don't know that there's anything else right that, that connects to it so well i do think that there are varying factions and interests among the asadis uh still if Bald Anders isn't an unreliable narrator. <laughs> then no one, as far as the age of the Herodules, then nobody is, right? Yeah. Uh, Christopher says, as for why the Kameyan seemingly does not realize exactly who Severian is, it could be as simple as her not expecting him. His, his appearance at the Stone Town could 
just well be an act of providence other than any machinations on her part. She may well have been there at Hildegrin's behest and only invites the very end to stick around on a hunch. Well, I, you know, this is actually a, a contrary uh, theory against uh, Mike Ferrars that it's all part of a plan. I, I, I do think that the Kamehian doesn't know what's going on. And uh, actually, we'll get an explanation from uh, from Severian in this chapter that we're starting uh, for why it is that Severian, you know, just so happened to wander into the stone town and mm -hmm. that the witches were there and, and, yep. and so speak. Yep. But I will say that at least the fact that she doesn't recognize him proves that the witches and the BFO Harajuls don't share notes, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Christopher likes our discussion about Moorcock. I think we there, this must have been a, on the blooper reel. He says, I found it interesting that you referred to the relationship between Gene Wolfe and Michael Moorcock. I read Moorcock's The War Amongst the Angels recently and was considering the contrast between the two authors without knowing that their paths had ever crossed. Both are known for their usage of language, whose meaning can seem to obscure on casual read. But their reasons for doing so are quite distinct. Wolf seems to intend that there be something definite happening that the reader may take time to piece together. Moorcock seems to mostly use unclear narrative to establish a mood, with the obscurity being the point itself. Or to put it another way, Moorcock is the better example of what you quoted someone as accusing Wolf of doing. Yeah. Um, Let's see, longtime journeyman patron Carl reached out to us on Patreon site to offer this interesting tidbit. Remember that in the Witch's Keep in the Citadel, Zavarian said he saw, quote, the Gnostic designs in white, green, and purple that had been chalked on the walls, but there was little furniture and the air seemed colder than outside. Carl notes that white, green, and purple are suffragette colors. And he wonders if this was intentional on Wolf's part. Maybe it was, Carl. That's Maybe. really interesting. Yeah. Okay. Now, also on Reddit, um, Mantis. Michael Andre Drusi was bestirred and had a lot of ideas. <laughs> so let's see. Uh, he says, the man might be precisely the command of Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel. That is, the new sun naming convention with saints for the good and pagan for the wicked. It gets into a gray zone, by the way, of Sistine Chapel. Hmm. Uh, I got to tell you the truth. Um, it, 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 the the, the command in that is a whole series of prophets, I guess. Yeah, there are a bunch of different ones. I mean, there's, there's one that I think is usually considered the Sybil, but... Uh, yeah, there's there's tons of prophets in the Sistine Chapel all around the sides. Let's see. Um, he says, regarding Moorcock, we've wondered before how the Book of the New Sun might be a reaction to John Crowley's The Deep in 1975, but I think a stronger case can be made that it, in total, or narrowed down specifically to Dr. Talos's play, is reaction to Moorcock's Behold the Man, 1969. Uh, not to be cryptic, he says, Moorcock's novel demands a working familiarity with a sacred text that is assumed to be known to all readers. And Wolf's play assumes a familiarity with a sacred text that all readers ultimately discover they do not know at all. Yeah. 
No, I like that. And behold, the man always seemed definitely more like a thing. Cause I mean, okay. Spoiler ahead for more cocks, behold the man, even though it's not really a spoiler if you're at all paying attention, but yeah, it's a story of somebody who goes back in time and basically turns out to be Christ and they get caught up in the story. And so it's the story of a sort of regular person who ends up becoming the true actual true Christ. So it's a very weird kind of story, but it's also very similar to how Severian, you know, is is taking on this role of the conciliator. So so that one is both thematically and plot based is the most similar to these. Yeah. Stories. So let's see. He yeah, he's decided to take on a uh, a framing of this scene. Uh, he says, Hildegrand has hired the Kameyan who brought along Marin, presumably after borrowing her from the witches. Thus, three factions are involved. The Vorolari, uh, which is the, the rebel, uh, Mystery, Unknown, and the witches, servants of the throne. But they're also individuals separated from their factions. The tableau here, he's, uh, remember that uh, Mantis is always uh, building names for these tableaus here, that re- that. He, he sort of uh, repeat themselves or could have more meaning just in the arrangement of people. He says the tableau is hour of the seance, or more specifically, the hour before the hour of the seance. The trio were preparing their magical task, and presumably they had all the items required for the job when suddenly another trio came along out of nowhere. The badger quickly went into hiding, either on his own or by suggestion of the command. The apprentice, trying to guess at the situation, when her teacher fails to answer Severian's question about the third one, starts the lie about there being only two. She fumbles it. This is uh, kind of like um, Neil Smith's point, right? Her later line about powerful beings that choose to borrow human seeming is stronger. If the command had said it, I would be certain it was a prompt for Severian to admit himself such a powerful being or for Severian to fear the sudden appearance of a big figure. Uh, like Hilderin, as being such a powerful entity, an either-or setup. Severian's line about the amount of wine being large for just two is a jab at it being enough for three. But in fact, wine sacrifice poured onto the ground might be part of the ritual. We just really do not know. There's a bit of, quote, the witch of Endor to it. Um, Marin's next strategy is, is to get the intruders to move. She's trying to stay on mission. The magic team must be at this location, the tomb of the person they intend to raise, so the intruders must move off. It is an echo of the grave robbing. Yeah, I definitely see this, Craig. It is an echo of the grave robbing. Hildegrin was there too. An echo of the lake of birds. I agree with that. Another grave robbing. Hildegrin was there. In addition to your uh, notice of the echo of the mask wearing at treachery twins cut rate party supplies where the twins misread him and went into lying tangents. The Kameyan finally weighs in and says that they can stay. I presume she was surprised by the arrival of the trio, but after watching, she has made a decision to go along with the additional people. I suspect that she can see the claw, but she is uncertain as to Severian himself that old thing, wondering if he is an active agent or just an opportunist adventurer. Marin states that she has been shamed. I like this chapter for showing how awkward the magic users are when faced with surprise. Severian's <laughs> rising sarcasm also deglamorizes the scene, making it seem like a con job, which lowers the expectation for the wow that is to come next. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, that's a pretty good, uh, pretty good uh, framing of the story. Yep. And yeah. we get the, the sorcerer's battle later where mm-hmm. they have some kind of power maybe, but they're also. Yeah. Which, yeah, they fall into it. Sort of, yeah. By, uh, mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. But I like that how magic users here are all possibly incompetent. <laughs> so <laughs> even, the, even the Cumaean maybe like she can do this, but doesn't really have control of the consequences. So well, I I mean, like- I, this is not a spoiler, but in uh, the book of the New- long sun, there is a, a repeated theme that when you pretend to be something you uh will you you have a tendency to become that thing yep yep symbols make us so mantis continues regarding the enduring mystery of the witches consider the three neighbors at the citadel the beast handlers the torturers and the witches presumably the beast handlers are the best known regularly going out of the Citadel into various venues in the living city. It is a toss-up between the torturers and the witches as to which is more legendary, but the text shows how disbelieving people are that the torturers still exist. So maybe they are more legendary. So this is just a setup for how I think it is neat that Severian has so much mystery regarding his neighbor and sister guild, the witches, which is sort of like what the civilians have for his own guild. Yeah. So Mantis also does a lot of thinking about uh, how much of this is like a a, a normal augury, uh, you know, seance with mm-hmm. uh, with that might involve actual sacrifices. He says it, it might be as simple as just pouring wine on the ground. It might be a blood sacrifice. It might be an animal sacrifice. It might require human sacrifice. And he's going to get into that a little bit later. Um, but he says if the requirement is blood, it will come from Marin. That would be the intent when they first arrive. If it's life, it'll come from Marin. With this stark fact, Marin's talk about there is no death takes on a different nuance, since it will be the same thing her mentor would naturally say to her to convince her to submit to the sacrifice. But then Joe Linta shows up, he says, and she wants to die, which is an Excellent quality for a sacrifice, <laughs> where even the animals are made to nod in acceptance. Jolinta is already been placed on the sacrificial table and vomited up her impurities. Severian's arrival with Jolinta in this way fulfills the sacrificial substitute, a dark version of Abraham and Isaac. Severian has saved his sister. Severian will lose little Severian in a similar tableau where the version is even darker. Oh, yeah. Very cool. It just, I like how you can find all those analogies and resonances. I just, I'm not sure if that's where, yeah, just if I I do this a lot. Uh, Okay. I can put all these things together, but did Wolf intend them? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I, uh, I asked Mantis, when you say that there was a sacrifice here, do you mean to say that the sacrifice is merely quote effective? That, that is, you know, symbolic within the text. Yeah, there's a sacrifice and and maybe there's some connectivity, but but it's not what anyone intended. It's what the author intended, right? Or are you saying that the Akamean intentionally sacrifices Jalenta in order to resurrect Apopunchao? And because the reason I asked this was because the Akamean does say that she expects Jalenta to live, although mm-hmm. she doesn't expect you know, gratitude from her for it. Yeah. Uh, Mantis says, it looks like a duck, it walks like a duck, it quacks like a duck. Maybe it is a duck. And he argues that Wolf does use fantasy-style magic necromancy in his stories. He cites uh, Soldier of the Mist and Home Fires. As for why the Kameyan says Jalinta will live, he says, I 
do not know what the command had in mind initially. I don't think she was planning to con Hildegrin, but that is possible. Maybe she offered to take the job on a, you know, best effort kind of thing, but that would weaken her reputation. And then again, the job is so enormous. Even now, I think we ignore how vast it is. Even if deep time has any meaning, uh, Typhon rises up without any ritual, but his death was recent compared to the head of day. But, you know, even then there's a boy sacrifice that's linked to his rising. And this alone links to the sorcerers themselves and what they probably would have done with little Severian, the, the guys out in the jungle. Um, I, so I do not know, he says, if the command was 100% planning on sacrificing Marin, or if it was just a contingency plan with an unspecified percentage chance of happening. I persist in seeing a menace that uh, Marin herself might not be aware of. We are focusing on intention here, he says, but I am arguing that intention might be moot. The necromancer in Soldier was a charlatan attempting a con, but the thing happened for real. Marin looks to me to be a potential sacrifice at a ghost-raising ritual, and Jalenta does really die. Hmm. Yeah, um, and, and I definitely see how you can find that stuff there, but it, it, there's, yeah, I'm just not sure that I... I see the sacrifice really being necessary. A plan. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I find the only reason I find it so hard to really believe that is that I don't, I do think I, this is a merge of science fiction and, mm -hmm. and, and fantasy, but I always have seen this as tilting a little bit to science yeah. fiction, less than yeah. fantasy. And I, as I've said, how you view that, tends to affect how you view a lot of the scenes in this book. And then a neuromancer. He says, um, gentlemen, you express wonder at why Marin asked Severian and Dorcas to move to another location. Uh, I presume that at a minimum, the Kamean informed her apprentice that they would be folding time in this place and that there are dangers in doing so. In the next chapter, we learn that you know, the Badger, a.k.a. Hildegrin, has a contract with these mages. I presume these rebels striving against the Autark would of necessity insist on pledges of secrecy in their dealings with anyone that they seek to employ. This would explain the witches dissembling and efforts to avoid making unnecessary disclosures while their high client is hiding just a few steps away and listening in. Imagine if the witches just made a totally blunt disclosure and says, hey, guys, uh, check it out. Hang out here with us. And uh, we're, we're going to be folding time. <laughs> it's going to be crazy. <laughs> and and uh, Hildegrin would just, you know, freak out. And I can imagine the, the badger jumping out of the shadows to shout, what? Yeah. <laughs> would shut your mouth, you witches. <laughs> <laughs> Even if the command were to have, you know, some foreknowledge that Severian Dorcas and Jalenta would be players in this scene, it doesn't mean that she would feel it necessary to disclose to her apprentice, Hildegrin, or to the three intruders in this space. Craig calls attention to the difficult path that the three travelers have to take to reach the three persons on the roof as just another clue that they have entered a region unstuck in time. And let's also consider the mystery of the stone town itself. It appears that the stone town was affected by several time passages made by Severian, by Asapego, Famulimus, and Barbados. And this time by Marin, the Kamean, Hildegrin, Dorcas, Jalenta, and Severian. 
there's something about these repeated passages uh, and ripples and resonance through time and space. As you read from chapter 29, the herdsman in the last chapter said, the ignorant eclectics who live near there believe that no matter which way a man goes, the stone towel moves itself to wait in his path. And the herdsman laughs and says, no, the stone town bends the way a man's mount walks. It seems the herdsman is comparing the effect of the town to a kind of gravity that pulls travelers to itself, whether yeah. they mean to go there or not. Severian then remembers the botanic gardens in Nessus with its portals and halls and openings in the past time. So he's aware that travel to witness past eras is possible. I like the idea that there is something about it that has a mind of its own, right? Like it's even if it's just, it's, just the fact that they're out there, that yeah. there's all this, this crisscrossing of time at yeah. this location. And even if it's just destiny calling, like there's just this <laughs> idea of, you know, time and gravity that pulls things towards what they're supposed to be. That's just a, even if you're, it's just basically in the end, kind of like a metaphor for predestination or something. I like right. it. I think it's cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're going to talk about Viva Mansters uh, in yep. this next chapter. And so I think there's a lot in there, a lot more uh, than perhaps I've, I've appreciated in the past, even. He says that uh, regarding the difference between the Kamehian and Father Aneri, he says it might be similar to the difference between the Hierophant and the High Priestess from the Tarot. Both are adepts, yet they access knowledge and the mysteries of the cosmos in different ways. I don't really know enough about tarot to say, to say anything thoughtful on that, but it's, um, but if someone's got some comments on it, maybe there's some, maybe there's something you can use from that. We know that Wolf was familiar enough with the tarot, at least the, and that's one of the major arcana, one of the big important ones. So yeah, he might know about that. Yeah. There's something to that. I mean, we're, we're talking about all these different ways of different wise people who are into different, you know, parts yeah. of the conspiracy. So, yeah. Uh, regarding the question of whether the Kumeyan is a Haradjul, as uh, Severian says, Ineri said, told him she was. He says, on first reading, I wanted to believe the Kumeyan to be one of the few true alien beings appearing in the Book of the New Sun. She appears to be unique, a reptilian snake-like being, like a naga beneath her human-seeming form. But the notion evaporates in, lapse, in the light of Father Ineri's statement. When Severian relays this statement to the BFO Herodules, they nod in confirmation. So he, now he has a, his own curiositus urfus. He proposes that the witches do not originate from the Torture's Guild, but have a separate origin. He, uh, he says, I consider the Kamehian to be a Herodule recruited by the ancient Autarchs to establish the order of witches. This raises the question, why does the Commonwealth need witches? And I suspect it is because the Autarchs are contending against forces which can gain future or past knowledge and intervene through time. The witches are the Autarchs' necessary counterforce of time warriors, ready and able to do battle against the Megatherians' effort to reshape time to a favored outcome. The shrieking and light changes coming from the witches' keep are likely due to shattering disruptions of time and space occurring as the witches transport their agents to and from the corridors of time. If such battles through time truly occur, this could also explain why the witches need to keep replenishing their ranks. Huh, yeah. They're time lords. They're <laughs> doctors. Yeah, or it's kind of in, in keeping with Mike Farrar's uh, theory that the witches are like a yeah, CIA or something mm -hmm. like that, right? 
Uh, or uh, yeah, I think Christopher Taylor <laughs> is Randy B uh, 007. So, and actually he does uh, connect this directly to Mike Farrar's uh, comment on Reddit, which shows he's reading it, even though he's actually talking to us on uh, the Patreon site. Anira Manser says, by removing Hildegren or allowing him to be extinguished due to the literal time pressures, the Kamean and Marin preserve Severian's life and timeline and thereby thwart an agent of Vodalus and the Megatherians. Hildegren's willingness to risk time travel to gain strategic advances makes him just the kind of threat that I assume the witches were created to oppose. Huh. This is this is this is good, and it, I mean it, it does interlace nicely with uh, Mike Farrar's uh, theory. I, I I confess, Craig, I just think nobody is this competent in this story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's 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 the old like the conspiracy things where you know, yeah, they'd have to be like mega competent and right, uh, right, far right, right. far more powerful and and. Yeah, I think only Severian at the end of Earth the New Sun is really that competent, but even he doesn't really understand himself. I think in in many key ways. Right. So right, cool to think. I mean, it, and honestly, if you do buy into the idea that all of this is being conspiratorially organized behind the scenes by Hyros or Eniria or whatever, then something like that. You need a team like, like that, uh, don't yeah, you? Yeah, you pretty much. Yeah, you like otherwise. It's all well and good if you imagine sort of being like, oh yeah, and there's a there's a vast cosmological conspiracy to support it, but you just kind of hand wave. But if you're if you want to figure out how it happens, you probably need something like this. Yeah, yeah. and also uh, Anira Manser thinks that this is why the uh, witches are described as having such an uh, aggressive sexuality. You know, they're. They're time warriors. They're frequently sent out on hazardous missions from which they might never return. So, you know, they're like soldiers. I, I could die tomorrow. You know, mm -hmm. maybe I, I wonder what the what Gurlow's experienced uh, as his first. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's the first sexual experience with the witches uh, it, that kind of yeah, if they were these kind him off to the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. So he would have been the Bond girl, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> well, there, that explains a lot, too, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, and Aaron Manser says uh, that, you know, I can, one can only imagine the feverish whirlwind that young Gurlo uh, experienced as he ventured or was pulled into that fear-inspiring center of female occult power. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. As for why the witches wear a mask, he says, I venture to assert that those ivory masks are the true uniform of the witches. Presenting a human face likely helps the Kamehian disguise her alien nature and to pass acceptably when interacting with human beings. Let's note that the wearing of masks has ancient origins rooted in shamanism, magic, worship, and mystery rites. That is actually appropriate. I, I agree with that one. We are very happy to say a thank you to new patrons since last time. We have one new journeyman, Charlie Garrett, and four new master level patrons. First, Alex Feinberg. That's fine by me. Noah. Oh, Matt L. Mud 
And Leo S. Leo woke up in his bed again. Thank you all so much for helping out with the donations. Remember, for $2 a month, you can get the Journeyman level, which gives you access to all the extra content. And then for an extra $5 a month, or sorry, extra $3 a month, total of $5, you get the Master level, which gets you extra little gifts throughout the year and those so fun little master clips. Check it out at patreon.com slash rereadingwolf or check links on all of our social media. And with that, we are going to dive right into the episode. Chapter 31, The Cleansing. All right. And it's the final chapter of Claw. The final, the final wow. chapter. You know, the play and then the sort of little bit of fatigue after that, I think, has definitely made Claw last a bit longer. But I'm, I'm, I, okay, I'm not going to celebrate yet because we haven't actually finished <laughs> Claw yet. We still got this and, and, and this is going to be a long one. You know, we were just talking about how this is probably going to, be a two-parter because there's a lot going on in this right. chapter there's a ton here a lot to talk about a lot of a lot big going on stuff. as we do it right we go yeah yeah but also <laughs> a lot of story i mean once you know what else is going on and tie right. up a punch out to the larger story and severian's role here True there's a ton going on and lots of suggestions about world building in the background too so exactly yeah, yeah. there's a ton here but yeah last chapter of claw that's kind of uh, bittersweet bittersweet and then of course we'll have the summary and i have a lot actually <laughs> been taking notes about all the things i've changed my mind about <laughs> and and it is extensive so <laughs> all right well we better get on with it okay uh so because we are now probably i think 29 days since the feast of saint catherine i've come to that realization or feeling i think uh saint catherine is on a new moon and here we are just past the full moon 29 days uh, it's hard to justify you know time here times that are especially fuzzy it seems to me or the period between the piteous gate and the period between Bodalus's camp and the attack on the nachuals and the period between severians meeting with the undine and arriving at the herdsman's house maybe I really feel like this is one of those uh, things. There, there are periods in this story where I think Wolf is deliberately trying to confuse us about the time. And uh, I think that is reflected here. Um, but here we get a final counting, I, I think. And uh, it's now um, 29 days since Severian, uh, his elevation is is the correct one and severian left the citadel two and a half weeks ago and wolf tells us at the end of this novel that the moon cycle is 28 days so yeah so i th i think uh severian talked to the undyne last night and that would mean they party with talos and baldanders the night before last and the plague was two nights ago and that means severian fled from the natural and resurrected the ulan four days ago Severian and Dorcas and Jolinta have stumbled upon some witches in an attempt to catch Talos and Baldanders. They are trying to save Jolinta, but the Kumeyan says, eh, lucky you, it can be done, but Jolinta will probably not agree that she was lucky, at, at least not initially. And Severian said he saw three people and Marin, the witch, lied or apparently lied, saying that there, no, there were only two. But it appears, and you know, maybe she's saying, no, no, the Kameyan isn't a person. I don't know. But it appears that the third person, Severian, 
saw Wes Hilderman. Mm-hmm. And the Kamehian has said that she will help Severian save Jalinta's life after they finish the ongoing business with Hilderman, who suddenly reveals himself. And I think it's interesting that the Kamehian is anxious to help Severian, even though it seems likely she doesn't realize why he is significant. Yeah, which for all of her otherwise knowingness about this, it is an odd point to me that she doesn't seem to recognize him or maybe even know who Apu Punchao was. Like, mm-hmm. and I think I'm right about that, that she doesn't seem aware that something big is going to happen. And Hildegren even talks about how she's kind of playing both sides. And he talks about her in a way that makes her seem not quite so omniscient. Like I think when you first read her and there's so much going on, there's this sense that the command is some somehow some kind of all knowing something or other. I don't know that she is really because, you know, they Hildegren says that she owes him a favor and, mm-hmm. you know, and, she, some, and he does. Apparently he does. He runs favors for her for her. Yeah. So there's definitely more of a worldly thing. And he even talks about how, you know, she's friends with Father Aniri because he, he says something and we'll get to this, but he, something like even if she's playing for the votalist side, it's good to have friends on the other side in case they win or something. Yeah. So so there's this weird thing that the command is somehow, yeah, I don't know, not. She doesn't know who she doesn't necessarily know who's going to win. Yeah. So I wonder Maybe, if she, Hildegren doesn't think that she knows. Right? right. And so if there's this sense that Aniri and the high Reduals and other people sort of are playing long term manipulation games in the background, I get the sense that the command may not be part of that. She may be helping them inadvertently, but she's not got her finger on the pulse yeah. quite like she is a different horses. kind of cacogen and there are a lot of different kinds of cacogen yeah, that is right? true yep so the chapter follows directly on from the last chapter when hildegren reveals himself with such panache and severian real finishes his business with Votalus. he says you may tell your master i delivered his message and hildegren just smiles and asks if he has any messages to send back he calls a uh, severian armature which Severian has told Agilus he has not. He also reminds him that he is from the Quercine Penetralia, which I guess means that that Severian could trust him with classified information. He says it like that, but then immediately after, that's when Dorcas speaks up and says, I was told if somebody says that. And so I was wondering if that was another one of those code words. Signals. Like, oh, like yeah, a code. Because like, I was wondering, too. I'm like. Did, did he, is that a term that actually came up back with the <laughs> I think it's more of a code word, like the pelagic argosy sales. You may tell me, okay, yeah, like a little signal that you may mm-hmm. tell him. Yeah, yeah, because, yeah, yeah, as soon as Severian says, I don't have any messages, and Story says, oh, but I do. <laughs> she, yeah. says, uh, she says that the person she met in the gardens in House Absolute, who uh, I think is the autark, told her that she would meet someone who identified himself as from the Corsine Penetralia, and that she should tell that person, quote, when the leaves are grown, the wood is to march north. And Hildegren puts his finger beside his nose. Uh, people do that in books all the time. <laughs> I'm sure you know what the gesture means, since it's, you know, it's what Santa Claus does. Santa Claus does. Yeah, exactly. In the 19th century. Laying his finger aside of his nose. Yes, yeah. 
But in the 19th century, I, it, it was a, basically a secret wink, like, you know, keep this on the down low or yep. just between you and me. Yep. The hobbits do it in Lord of the Rings too, uh, yeah, when they're, of. when they're stealing the fireworks. It's, I think Pippin does it when, mm-hmm. to, to Mary. Yep. Right. He, so, um, Hildegrin says, all the wood. Is that what he said? Uh, but Dorcas says, look, I told you what he told me. <laughs> But one thing we should say, quercine penetralia, quercine means like of an oak tree mm-hmm. um, and penetralia seems like it, you know, kind of what it is, like some something that penetrates the inner circle is kind of how I read it. So it could just be a name for like the votalist of the wood inner circle. You know, it could be a way of. Yeah, yeah. That. It means he's from in the That's what, what it's surely what he meant was. Yeah. Penetralia is the innermost parts of a building especially like the sanctuary of a temple, the holy holies, the, or, or in, in, in other sense, the most private secret parts, the recesses, the bowels of the ship, as they say in the movie Alien. Cool. And yeah, I did not know that quercine was a word for like of an oak or of trees, but there you go. I learned that today. So Severian, who is behind, as he usually is, he's over here telling Dorcas, why did you tell me about this? And Dorcas says, well, I, I hardly had an opportunity to talk up to you alone <laughs> since we met the crossing of the paths. <laughs> and Craig, that's ridiculous. They talked about folk songs and Ouroboros legends. Yeah, they marched weird... through Pampas and even roasted a bull, but she has other reasons. She says, besides... I could see it was a dangerous thing to know. I I couldn't see any reason to put that danger on you, Severian, with your sword and and a guy who cuts people's heads off all the time. You can't. Don't worry, little Severian. I'll protect you. Mm -hmm. And we know, too, that once we get into sword, we're going to find out pretty quickly that Dorcas is right pulling away. So this is a little bit maybe a foreshadowing of Mm -hmm. her eventual pulling back into herself. Like, it's not it's not that big a deal but it is just one moment where you know severian is not her all and everything anymore where she's just gonna unload everything for him she's starting to act on her own a little bit more keep secrets from him basically and yeah so just a little point that in terms of her character she's moving away a little bit yeah and i I guess rereaders would of course presume that it was the autark who told her this and she does say that it was the guy who gave talus the money yeah. And uh, she knows that the guy who she doesn't who she doesn't realize he's the autark didn't tell that information to Talos. So and Severian says, Yeah, but he must have told you to tell me. She says, No. Yeah. <laughs> but why didn't the autark want Severian to convey this message? Yeah, it's a good question. And I don't know. I mean, it and I wonder. I wonder if it has something to do with what it's about. Like, was he afraid that Severian was going to know? But there's no sense, I think, that he would necessarily want to keep secrets. I mm-hmm. I don't know. So it's one of those weird things that has the feel of, like, somebody manipulating something yeah. behind the scenes and wanting certain people to know something and not other. But I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, and especially since it's vague enough to just say, like, when the leaves change the wood needs to move, which sounds right. like it, you know, it has the sound of, especially if Vodalus and his people are of the wood. Yeah. Like, all right, you guys need to go North and attack right. join the exactly. war or something. Right. I, yeah. And I, when the leaves change, I guess that's some, maybe that's the, be the seasons. Yeah. I mean, yeah it could literally be the season, right. but I don't know, or the leaves could stand for something else. I don't know. Um, but 
that's what it seems to be. But yeah, that's where it just gets too hard to tell. Like, well, would someone have told someone else? And so we're going to keep it secret from Severian by only telling it to the person closest to him in the world, <laughs> right? You're like, uh, uh, yeah. Well, maybe that would be the best way. But I think here's what I think. Here's what I think. I think the Autark is already afraid that he's interfered too much in Severian's destiny, his timeline. He knows that Severian is supposed to meet him by natural course in the north, in the war. He's told Severian that he should go on as if he's going to take up his duties, convinced that he will do that in his heart. He wants Severian to act as much as possible as if he's never met the Autark because, you know, House Absolute was not where they were supposed to meet. He tried to shortcut that situation before, and now he's trying to patch things up. So he doesn't want to use Severian as a conduit because he's convinced that's not how it happened for the, you know, it, well, I'm going to say it's not how it happened for the first Severian, but it's not how it's supposed to happen. Just put it that way. Hmm, interesting. And that potentially makes some sense. I, Yeah, it's just to, to answer that question, there's so many if this is <laughs> what if, that, if but, Well, that's no. the, yeah, that's the world I live in. So yeah. And, but I think too mate might be just this sort of sense of having them feel like they're pulled into some kind of conspiracy mm-hmm. so that they, you know, stay a little bit confused and just keep moving in the directions they want them to. That seems like it could be something. Yeah. yeah but so maybe he did. Maybe he assumed that Dorcas was going to tell anyway, but. And Dorcas yeah. didn't know who he was then, but I would have to assume that they would assume that Severian would tell Dorcas who he was himself. He did he now I'm trying to think, did I totally forget? Did, is there any place we actually see Severian tell Dorcas? Hey, I think no, he doesn't. He does not. He doesn't tell anyone this. Okay. Hmm. Okay. So anyway, uh, Hildegrin just chuckles and he has a sound in his chuckle that quote might have come from underground. <laughs> so again, this whole big sense of Hildegrin being big and mountainous, and yeah, well, kind of a, a reference, a reference to that thing under the uh, under the uh, Manape's cave, yeah, right there. Also, possibly a sense of um, someone who has died or a ghost, you know, mm-hmm. underground. Uh, I, I don't have an answer for what it means, but I want it to mean something. It, he. he uh, he says it doesn't matter, and he'd actually rather that Dorcas had waited until later to tell him rather than doing it in front of everyone. So I don't know. Yeah. Of course, he'll never get around to delivering that message. So I guess the Autark will have to give it to someone else. But but Hilderin says that what matters is we're all friends here, except maybe for the sick girl, and I don't think she can hear what's said or understand what we're talking about if she could. What did you say her name was? I couldn't hear too clear when I was over there on the other side. And Severian looks at Jolinta in the light of the fire, and he sees that she is, quote, Jolinta no longer. Mm-hmm. Nothing of the beautiful woman Jonas had loved remained in that haggard face. Ouch. So I think she was bitten by a blood bat, and uh, I mean... But but Hildegrin seems to think that's implausible. He says, "A bat bite did that. They're, they've grown uncommonly strong. Then uh, I've been bit by a couple times myself." <laughs> and Greg, I like I like that you got Hildegrin being Australian. Uh, cool. Yeah, that or um, 
or Hagrid from uh, from Harry <laughs> Potter. Yeah, that's kind of how I picture him. I do, yeah, I do yeah. picture him a little bit that way. But um, and except he in my head he's wearing like steampunk getup for some reason. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. But um, <laughs> but yeah, a top hat. Yeah. Most importantly, oh, yeah. a top hat. Yep, that's what I think. That's the thing that makes him steampunkish. Yeah. So, but the point there is does seem like another one of those moments where it's something that happens and the characters kind of argue whether or not it's a physical cause or an emotional spiritual kind of cause. And it seems like it's uh, very well could be both. Like mm-hmm. she could have well have been bitten by a bat and that's just sort of the physical excuse for her to, you know, give in. She's right? falling. You know, she's just, and, and it's just the reason why she's so susceptible to it is because she's so depressed and, and despairing. Right. Could well, be, you know, but it course. does it also does bring up that thing again. Did she try to kill herself or was she bitten by a bat? Like that's the other, right. yeah, that's the other ambiguity there. Well, I think we can agree. Hildegrin here is just talking about his, her change from the last time he's seen mm-hmm. her, I guess. Um, yeah. So, uh, but this is one thing. Um, he says he's been bitten a couple times by blood bats. So that's a solid strike against my robot Hildegrin theory. Wait, when, wait, Oh, Hildegrin says he followed him. That's, that's how he saw her before. Cause I'm like, she yeah. wasn't there in the lake, but then he says later, okay, yeah, never mind. Not never mind. only that, but I kind of am coming to the belief that uh, Talos and Baldanders were the people that Vodalus had uh, keeping tabs on Severian. He says that they lost track of him after the uh, piteous gate and Hmm. that would explain why they lost track of him. That's interesting. I never quite made that connection. I always thought Talos and Baldanders were off on their own, doing their own thing. But if, I mean, Dorcas does say, it seems like they were always spying or looking for something. Right. Always looking for something. Hmm. I mean, Hmm. it doesn't mean that, that that's all there were. I, yeah, Yeah. they're, they're, they working for yeah, they got the, course, maybe yeah. they're working for uh you know Malrubius too but interesting hmm. interesting interesting okay but you know he does say that he was bitten a couple times by a blood bat and that craig is a solid strike against my robot hildegrin theory woohoo <laughs> and hildegrin at this point reveals to severian mostly what Vodalus has already told him uh, at, after the Botanic Gardens, when Severian tipped his hand about knowing Vodalus, Severian told him that he was headed north. He knew he was going to a duel of a supposed officer of the, the Septentrians. He watched the duel. He helped catch Agilus, and he watched Agilus's execution. He watched the play in Catesson's uh, uh, Cross, where Equestor Malrubius, or maybe the actual Malrubius, who knows, was in attendance. He lost track of him at the riot uh, at Piteous Gate. And now he can see that there's not much left of Jalenta except her hair. And he can see even that is fading. So, And Marin is anxious to show off what she knows about the mystery of Jalenta. And the Kumeyan gives her permission to do it. She has been imbued with a glamour that rendered her beautiful. It's fading fast now because of the blood she lost and because she's had a great deal of exercise. By morning, only traces will remain. No, well, that explains a lot, really. Yeah, she's lost. She has lost blood. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's, you know, she's always tired, right? She doesn't yep. want to walk. She's not, she doesn't like to walk. It's not good. And, you know, and then she's not getting her injections to, to make up for that. Yeah, so she's but- fading fast. 
glamour is such a cool word for that because it could be spell it could be it's yeah it's a it's a magic sound but even Marin says you know it's not magic there's no such yeah. thing yeah oh and we get a little comment here of a little philosophical discussion about what counts as magic and how people yeah. define it and all that kind of thing so it's a cool word here because this is a great kind of wolf quote-unquote explanation because on the one hand you've got characters saying oh yeah it's this thing but it doesn't necessarily give you the full explanation and there's even some areas in it that may mean something more than that and we even then other characters think oh well maybe it's also this other thing coming in so it's such a cool moment of how wolf explains what happens is that we get again all these possibilities that make sense but it's not the kind of explanation that clearly lays out every little part of it so it's yeah. just such a typical wolfian moment i think yeah and dorcas says do you mean they used magic on her Marin says there is no magic there is only knowledge more or less hidden ah the famous line <laughs> mm-hmm. so it- and it's it's a version of arthur c clark's thing right about yeah magic is only technology from uh that you start to understand or something so also you know all of that exercise you know that she's not supposed to have because it damages her beauty that could explain why she passed out in the boat although you know for me it doesn't explain much else on the boat but you know there's that Hmm. she's out walking all day with severian and she's exhausted she's tired yeah and hildegrin looks at jolenta and is impressed and he says I didn't know looks could be changed so much. That might be useful. That might. Can your mistress do it? She could do much more than this if she willed it. And Dorcas whispered, how did they do it? And this is the Cumaean, right? Who says, there have been substances drawn from the glands of beasts added to her blood to change the pattern in which her flesh was deposited. Those gave her a slender waist, breasts like melons and so on. They may have been used to add calf to her legs as well. Cleaning and the application of healthening broths to the skin freshened her face. Her teeth were clean too, and some were ground down and given false crowns. One has fallen away now, if you'll look. Her hair was dyed and thickened by sewing threads of colored silk into her scalp. No doubt much body hair was killed as well, and that at least will remain so. So body parts were removed from her. Mm-hmm. If the witch has saved her life, she'll up ultimately you know, live out the rest of her life maimed. Yeah. And when they talk about substances drawn from the glands of beasts, that could just mean extreme hormones, but it could also be something Alzabo-like that actually you know, had serious change. Yeah, it's again, it's one of those explanations that says one thing, but doesn't really say exactly what they mean. Like cleaning of her skin, right? <laughs> like clean. Yeah. Okay. Well, what, what I, I take it, you mean something much more intense than just cleaning. Well, maybe it wasn't, maybe it was, maybe it's just, maybe, you know, yeah, maybe it could it, be just beauty treatments as well as the be. other stuff. It could well be, but it's, it's just such a cool moment. Cause the, yeah, it's never overly specific. It's, right. It's always a little vague, um, but yeah, dental work, all kinds of stuff, but that's not it. So most important, she was promised beauty while entranced. Such promises are believed with faith greater than any child's, and her belief compelled yours. Wolf was a great believer in the power of suggestion, even the power of suggestion over people who encounter the ones suggested. Yeah, and I actually, so I'll harp on this line for a second because it does kind of go back to my pet theory about how 
new sun is a world where there is no God until people start to make it. And then you actually do get some mm. kind of divinity because oh, yeah. here it's, it's a simple little thing of saying, you know, if you're told you're a beautiful, if you have that symbol in you that says, I am beautiful, then you will come to become that thing, even if you're not completely. So something about faith and belief here is transformative. And yeah, mm -hmm. I know they're, what they're saying is, is it could just be the simple thing of, Hey, if you are confident, other people are going to perceive you as confident and have a higher image of yours. And it's, right. you know, apparently something with hypnotism and stuff like that. Um, but that also could explain why once she feels like she, if she really was in love with Talos and that he's not around anymore, then if that confidence is gone, then all the rest of it kind of falls out. Yeah. It collapses. Yeah. 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 But I just like that little line there because it is, in one sentence, such a nice little connection to that larger idea that seems very similar to me about symbols make us. Yeah. Yeah. So Dorcas asks if anything can be done to restore her. And Marion says, she can't, Marion can't, but, and it's not the kind of thing, work that the command does. But, you know, then will she live? And Marion says, the mother said she would, although she won't want to. Yeah, so the command definitely has some wisdom here and, and at mm -hmm. least just understands what people are going through somehow. Maybe it's because of how she can see time and, you know, what different things people go through. Uh, she also just may be, you know, just maybe smart in that way. She yeah. can get what people are going through. So Hildegrin is ready to move on to what he came here for. He says... The armature here can help me fetch up this Apupunchao. It appears the plan is to resurrect Apupunchao and carry him bound up, tied up if necessary, to Vodalus. And Hildegrin had two helpers, but they got killed somehow on the trip here. Mm -hmm. But just as the Undines were trying to get Severian as an ally, Vodalus wants to enlist Apupunchao, which is irony. And then the Kameyan says, she's ready. She says, the star is ascendant. All right, Craig, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about this star. Mm -hmm. uh, let's let's wait on it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we, we will get to it. We promise. In my head, by the way, uh, I was thinking, uh, Hilgren talks like Blackbeard the pirate. or More even in this one than yeah. he does in, yeah. in some other ones, yeah. Or apparently George Washington, if the linguists I've been following are correct. Yeah. So Dorcas asks what we're all doing here. And, and Hildegrin says that the plan is bringing back the past, diving back into the time of Earth's greatness. There was someone who used to live in this place we're sitting on that knew things that could make a difference. I intend to have him up. It'll be the high point, if I may say, of a career that's already considered pretty spectacular in knowing circles. So my apologies to the pirates. <laughs> so uh, this is another resurrection job, just digging someone up who knew things. But here's a question. What did they expect to get out of him? You know, but honestly, yeah. you know, yeah. I, and I've been wondering that for a long time. Like what <laughs> were they going to get out of someone from a long time ago? Unless they had some sense that, he wasn't just the guy from back then, but that he was some kind of time traveler. Like, mm -hmm. the, like, I, cause there is something about the story they tell about how he would, he would go away and come back. And every time he came back, he would 
essentially, it sounds like teach people how to do stuff like either technology or something like that, which is in a way like what the Hyrodules do, at least yeah. the way that they talk about bald Anders. Um, and so I wonder if there's some sense that they thought he might be a candidate for that and that he would therefore teach them something else. Because otherwise, yeah, I have no idea what Vodalus would want from somebody from millennia ago right like like i it's just so weird like what hildergan and vodalus would want like maybe they would want like leadership advice or something you know it's (laughs) like but that seems like quite a stretch to go just to learn from someone so that's why i started to think that they have to think that maybe he was some kind of time traveler like hildergan apparently knows that you can time travel and that's why he goes to the Cumaean to say, hey, do this for me. Yeah, um, maybe, well, maybe, maybe the <laughs> Megatherians have tipped them off. They're, they're not telling him what he is or who he is, but they know that he's a, he is a big deal. And Could know, be that, yeah. They want, just, just as the, you know, the Undyne's trying to get Severian by the river, yeah. they, they, here's another means. Yeah, so it, it could be that. But otherwise, I don't know, like I was trying to rationalize what exactly would it be that they would want from this ancient legendary figure. And it does seem like he's more legendary than historical at this point. So yeah, but if, they, if, even, if the, if the Megatherians have, have just told them, you know, this is a this is someone who's a big deal. They don't have to ask questions. Right. Yeah. They yep. know. I mean, let's let's face it. Vodalus is digging up everybody in in the Commonwealth. And he doesn't care. All he wants is he just has this obsession with the past. It's kind of crazy. I That's mean, true. It could be. I could see him digging up people to get rela- dirt on relationships in the house. Absolute. Yeah. Uh, I didn't think about that. And honestly, it never clicked until just now that they might that Hildegard's going back, maybe just to kill him and then eat him and <laughs> yeah. him that way, which <laughs> they're going to get they're going to get the I, information out of him one way or the yeah, other. Yeah, I think that's that's how what they've been doing a lot of other kinds. So because Hildegard's very kind of violent with him like they certainly don't go back in time and like try to talk to him like right. they, like hildergan just rushes him so i mean i could see that if this were had been successful that by the time hildergan got back to camp there someone else would have arrived and um would have rescued uh you know apapunchow a severian from you know from Vodalus, and you'd have had a whole nother novel a whole other story of of him on his way through Eskia or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's an odd question and it, it leads into the same thing I was saying in the last one about like where motivations to me in these last couple chapters get very confusing, very suggestive rather than Mm -hmm. suggestive of things rather than relatively clear things that are just sort of talked about in esoteric ways. Like, yeah, the, the whole point behind going back to get Apu Punjau, I do not know. Yeah. Um, and, and once again, you know, if the Megatherians know, you know, who Apupuncha was, it seems that the Kamehian is f- at least fuzzy on it. She, mm-hmm. doesn't, she doesn't know everything. It's really interesting. And I think, too, from what I understand, like, because we know Severian's going to learn pretty quickly, and the Hyrodules know that if you have two people meet in time that they 
blow up or cause some kind of explosion or something. Yeah. She would probably know that too. And if she knew much about a punch, but she doesn't know, she doesn't know this fellow here though. No, she, knows, I know. she, maybe she knows about Apu Puncha, but she doesn't know, or, or that she knows if she doesn't know about him, she knows something about him. Mm -hmm. And so she knows where to find him, when to yep. find him. But she doesn't know this kid who's standing here in front of her is this guy as no. well. Although it seems like she should, if she can see the future of things, too. Well, but I don't think she can see the future. I I'll, I'll tell you, I don't. Uh, I, um, That's I can't remember if I talk about it, but I, what I, I we'll get into this a little bit later, I think. But what I think she sees is. Think of this as like a, a, a mini worlds since you know not everyone likes my my multi-universe things or but think of it as a mini worlds construction like for for master ash she has knowledge of all of those iterations of her in those mini world branches in that garden of forking paths simultaneously and so she so as if if severian had come and revealed himself in one of those other branches she would know but unfortunately, he hasn't. He didn't. This is a one-off. This is unique. Could be. And I I think there's a part where when Marin explains how the chameleon experiences time, it sounds instead more like she just lives her own life simultaneously. And then they talk about how why they have to get in touch with the star because the star has the ancient being that lived way back. Um, so I don't know. Because there's a way that I was reading it before that when you said that, about not knowing the future maybe i was like oh maybe she only knows her entire past and something but they call her like a seeress which seems like she'd be able to like the whole reason they come to her is because she right. can see things in the future yeah knowledge of all of her other uh, of all of the events that happened in her lives and all her other lives then yeah she's a she's really a knowledgeable person because she knows all of the possibilities that might be going on at this time but she doesn't know everything she doesn't know the consequences of what she's doing if, if especially particularly if this is a, something that has never happened in any other circumstances she doesn't she, her knowledge is useful and enlightening but it's not all powerful she doesn't know everything she doesn't know the future she doesn't know everything about the past yeah but she knows but she is old and she yeah. knows a lot unless she does know everything and is doing all this yeah. to have Severian bump into Apu Puncha. So. <laughs> Wouldn't that be fun? I, I I can't actually determine what was useful in that. <laughs> right. <laughs> We're such helpful commentators. That all may be true, unless the opposite. <laughs> Could all be a conspiracy. Yeah, um, yeah well, so here they are performing a resurrection. And... As in the first chapter of Shadow of the Torture, Severian yep. encounters three people doing that work. Hildegren, the Kamean, who could be a stand-in for Vodalus and Marin here. So here we are again. We, we, we've noted the structural parallels of this event and the exhuming of Barnock, uh, the house tomb, the resurrection, the, the presence of the in the uh, the Alcalde story of the Kamean or, you know, a Kamean or the Kamean, uh, you know, I'd probably say her her presence is there based on that story of, uh, of Mother Pyrexia. So here are also all the structural paragraphs 
to not only the first chapter of Claw, but also the first chapter of Shadow of the Torture, mm -hmm. which I think is pretty cool. Yep. And considering that, there's Marin, who has been a candidate over the years for Severian's mother or sister, just like Thea in some sense. And I'll say that I've become increasingly attracted to the idea that the body in the grave could be Severian's mother as an earlier clone of Thecla. And I like that idea because of the overlays in this story with great expectations. Because, you know, in the first chapter, as I said, uh, Pip encounters a criminal and falls into league with him immediately. And where is Pip standing? In front of his mother's grave. But there is another formulation that I admit I don't like it because it bedevils my beautiful, carefully constructed explanation of this entire book. And that is that it is not Thecla who is a clone of his mother, but Thea instead standing before his mother's grave. And he is standing before, you know, her ghost. In fact, you know, I guess both could be true. It, it, it would be an explanation for why Severian, while he loves Thecla, is so super turned on when uh, Thecla resembles Thea, much more than Thecla mm. alone. And, and he's attracted to false Thea, maybe more than false Thecla. Remember Severian getting turned on toward all the women right after his dream about his mother on the riverbank. It works as far as it goes, but Thecla as clone mother, sister. But anyway, you know, it's something to put in our pocket. Yeah. But let's try it another way. Marin is a candidate for Severian's sister. And if Thecla is sort of his mother's sister, then Thea is his sister too. I don't know. Back to it. After what Hildegrin says they are doing here, he presumes they are digging up a body, nothing more than bones now, and the use of the Alzabo to extract the memories. And he says, you're going to open a tomb? Uh, but the Kameyan corrects him as she strokes Jolinta's forehead. We may call it a tomb, but it was not his. His house, rather. And this is an interesting connection. It forces us, like I said, to remember exactly how much Wolf thought about the events of Apu Punchao's death and entombment and simply did not include it because he didn't think it artistically belonged, since Severian himself would not have direct access to that information, right? Mm -hmm. All of this doesn't ever come out until Earth of the New Sun. And it does feel like he had this idea in mind, right? Yeah. Then Hildegrin explains further, You see what with me working so near? I've been in the way to do this Chatelaine a favor now and then. More than one, if I may say it and more than two. Finally, I figured the time had come for me to collect. I mentioned my little plan to the master of the wood. You may be sure. And here we are. So it's inviting to imagine that the events of Apupunchao are in our ancient past, in the ancient South America, since mm -hmm. Apupunchao is a myth in our time. But Michael Andre Drusi has argued that it has to be more recently because Severian sees a red sun when he is in that time. Yeah, that's one trick that confuses things mm -hmm. a lot. Because otherwise, I thought, I always think, yep, this is, this is like he's in Machu Picchu. He's yeah. back in an Inca town. And that, that what we're talking about here, it seems like is like the beginning of the Inca civilization. Yes. But I, but with the red sun, that, that definitely confuses things. Yeah. I mean, I find that intriguing, but it just seems unlikely. 
Uh, Typhon gives us to believe that the dimming of the sun is only recently started in earnest, and and Severian is able to use his new sun powers with ease in Typhon's time. But in Apupunchao's time, for most of it, the new sun has not arrived. So I think this has to be in the ancient past. It cannot be when the sun is stricken. Um, And I know there's a paradox there. I know there's a riddle to be solved with the red sun, but you know, we have some time to worry about that. Hmm. Question two, Hildegrin says, what with me working so near? Uh, so Hildegrin has conferred with the Kamehian here on multiple occasions in the past, resurrecting the question, why did Father Aeneas build the Garden of Endless Sleep? If the Autarch could just go a little bit to the north and confer with her without any construction at all, or why not just go to the Witch's Tower? If anything, this is the most serious evidence that Severian is positively wrong in supposing that there is only one Kamehian and one assistant. It is entirely possible that there's only one face, that they all wear the same mask, but you know, maybe there is one at the Citadel, and, uh, in the future Italy, and at, at Old Lake uh, Avernus, and at the Garden of Endless Sleep. Uh, you know, she lets the Autark confer with her and the one north of the House Absolute. Uh, this one, it's one that the Autark doesn't confer with because, you know, she's less trustworthy. Uh, you know, maybe and maybe the other one is more powerful, influential, knowledgeable than the one here. Hmm. Or maybe she does work for the Autark, but you know, he uses her to feed the insurgency information and control them. I, I confess, I-, I like that angle the least, but I don't know. Hmm. All right, question three. What sort of tasks has Hildurin been performing for the Kumeyan, and why did Wolf never get around to writing the inevitably popular adventures of Hildurin stories? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, even by his own account, his adventures have been legendary. You know, if the this were a like a, a universal cinematic universe or a, a Marvel cinematic universe, you know that there would be a separate Hildegren movie out yeah. at some point. Yeah. 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 So uh, Severian says, hey, wait a minute. Uh, the Kumeyan works for Father Aeneri. And Hildegren says, she pays her debts. Quality always does. And you don't have to be a wise woman to know it might be wise to have a few friends on the other side in case that's the side that wins. So <laughs> that thing about her not being completely committed to one side or the other, that she's yeah. willing to, to play both. Well, she's you. got work and she, you know, look, she has to pay her people. So yeah. uh, there's two ways of reading this. Uh, either she works for Father Aeneri to pay her debts and, and being allowed to remain on Earth. That's a, a common reading. But I don't like it because it doesn't seem to me that Father Aeneri or the whole of the societies have that kind of power on earth to banish a race of time manipulators from earth. The other way of reading it uh, is the one I favor. Hildegrin has helped the chameleon out tasks that could not presumably be performed by just anyone. And maybe they were tasks in the service of Aeneri or the Autark. And, and now she owes Hildegrin a favor and ethically she must pay. And anyway, you know, why shouldn't she make friends with the Megatherians, as he said, as well as the Autark, just in case. But still, we have no hint of what relation the Kumeyan and her special Commonwealth Bureau of Witches has to do with Neri or the Asadis. There's another potential series of stories that are open to us there. 
look at this. I'm just pitching spinoff. Yeah, you got it. Movies to crazy. Working on the cinematic universe. Yeah. But we still have the question of Hildegrin's comment, just in case that's the side that wins, because, you know, it has never been determined what winning means here. Now, the consensus presumption among readers has always been that the Megatherians want to prevent the coming of the new sun. Um, I, I, see the, I see the point in that. The call day in Solstice says that they are the enemies of the new sun. Hildegrin certainly believes he is an enemy of the Autark rather than working for him. And Hildegrin is surely aware that the Asadis are the reason the Autarchy exists and they want the new sun because they, you know, they conduct the tests. Mm-hmm. So friend of my enemy is my enemy. Severian, at this point, and for the first time, readers, heck, long-time readers, seem to assume that the Undyne was luring Severian into the water to drown him. But the question there is still why then she self-evidently saved Severian from drowning a year and a half ago or so, in her own past, apparently. In addition, there's the play where Nod wants the, the, the first man of Earth, Meshia, to wed his daughter. And the prophet says the monsters like Nod come after the coming of the new sun. That said, it's entirely plausible to me that the Megatherians came from a universe iteration where the sun came. And now, in this iteration, they don't care at all if the new sun comes. They're going to live it up. <laughs> I, I don't like that, but I have a... a but I have a conflict in my own mind. What it appears to me are the Megatherians' goals, a belief that is confirmed by what Baldander says of them in Earth, the New Sun, and what everyone in the Commonwealth, including Severian, seems to believe are their goals. And it is dissatisfying to me that there should be this rivalry set up inside this book, inside all these books, a rivalry that structurally runs through the books, like a supporting beam running through the length of a house, just to have it not true, not for the Megatherians not to actually be enemies of the new sun. But I think all the explanatory text, everywhere someone tries to explain what's going on, such as Bald Anders, who after all does know a lot, or the play, which is screwy, but likely based on deep knowledge, I don't know. You're all on your own on this one. <laughs> yeah, it just, a lot of that, it starts to get way deep into speculation world. So it's just hard, hard to know. And I, I still go back to wondering, it's worth thinking about whether or not there is supposed to be clarity among all that right here, or if Severian's just supposed to be getting caught up in all kinds of conspiracies and confusion. I mean, I, I, all I don't conspiracies meet right. Yeah. Here and I don't, down. I don't really like that one that much, but like I said, just things start to get so confusing here that I, I get confused. Right. <laughs> so it, yeah, a little tautology for you, but it's all right. So uh, Dorcas asks all the right questions and Severian theorizes. He rarely just asks Dorcas asks because She's as smart as she is nice. And she asks the command, who was this Apupunchao and why is his palace still standing when the rest of the town is only tumbled stones? And the command doesn't answer. But Marin, the student with her hand always up up in class, she, she explains. Less than a legend, for not even scholars now remember his story. The mother has told us that his name means the head of day. 
In the earliest eons, he appeared among the people here and taught them many wonderful secrets. Often he vanished, but always he returned. At last he did not return, and invaders laid waste to his cities. Now he shall return for the last time. Ah, now a careful reader should recognize that this way of appearing and disappearing and reappearing is also reminiscent of both the claw and the conciliator. But after all, no one is as smart as Wolf expected (laughs) us to be. Yeah. Also here, that thing when he says, and taught them many wonderful secrets. Like again, that that's pleasantly vague. (laughs) It could be like secrets about what technology about, life about what yeah so so we don't know but but it it does seem that the witches have not connected apu punchao to the conciliator themselves right 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 or or how much do they know i mean are they walkers in time we don't really know they they're kind of they're they're time travel adjacent yeah can they themselves travel in time i don't know yeah, and it's not even clear that Marin could. She yeah. talks about how the Cumaean can, but yeah, it's not sure. I'm not sure if that means that Marin can too, or if she's just here to help. Yeah. If that makes sense. So he did all these things. Dorcas says, Oh, really, Marin? And he did all these things without magic. <laughs> and the Cumaean looked up at Dorcas with eyes that seemed as bright as the stars. Words are symbols. Marin chooses to delimit magic as that which does not exist, and so it does not exist. If you choose to call what we are about to do here magic, then magic lives while we do it. In ancient days, in a land far off, there stood two empires divided by mountains. One dressed its soldiers in yellow, the other in green. For a hundred generations they struggled. I see that the man with you knows the tale. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, Severian knows the story, and he pipes up. Yeah, after a hundred generations, an Aramite came among them and counseled the emperor of the yellow army to dress his men in green and the master of the green army that he should clothe in yellow. But the battle continued as before. In my saber tash, I have a book called The Wonders of Earth and Sky, and the story is there. Yeah, it's, um, this is from the Brown Book story, Empire of Foliage and Flowers which was not included in this novel. It was only finally included in the limited edition of Planet Engineering Collection. But now you can get this story in the easily obtainable Star Waters Strain Collection, which also includes a secret Book of the New Sun story from the cradle. (laughs) And the, the point of the story, at least as they're putting it here, and it definitely gets more complicated in the one that, Wolf actually wrote, but the way they present it here seems like the point of the story is six of one, half a dozen of another. Yeah. Right. Where <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it's, and that's what she's kind of saying about magic. He, she's like, you know, if you call it magic, then fine. But you can also think that, again, that thing about magic being just technology by another name or something. So, yeah, it's another point where, you know, it's not like we're saying here that. Yes, the world is actually magical. It's, it's <laughs> not that there may be mysteries. It just may be that what you don't know right now, you call magic. Or it might be more magic than you know. Yeah. It's another one of those things that certainly is not meant to exactly clarify. <laughs> yeah. But she, you know, she says that words are symbols, and which is true. Great out says it, too, yeah. which is nice that we get that actual phrase. Oh, yeah. We get it. We've, once again, another connection to the first chapter. Yep. 
And, uh, you know, but words as symbols means that, uh, you know, symbols can change what they mean. They can mean different things. They can mean opposing things. They can mean, uh, over time, they can mean one thing and in their sense, they mean another. So, which is something you should remember when you start, you know, saying, you know, you know who said that? Hitler. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. Hitler said some things, but, that, but you know what? He, he probably most things he said, it, he doesn't mean he didn't mean what the person you're talking to meant. Yeah, and uh, and and also of course the whole thing about you know symbols make us right, yep. and yep. and the words we choose to use about things also frame who we are, what we think, yeah, what we believe. Yep. The empire of foliage and flowers switch. They switch clothes and then they uh, they continue the fight. Right in America, we call this the war of the Democrats and Republicans. Oops. <laughs> I think, Ignore that. We don't get political here. Not modern political. <laughs> so regarding the book of the wonders of earth and sky, the Cumaean says that is the wisest of all the books of men, though there are few who can gain any benefit from reading it. Ah, uh, the Cumaean makes a wry joke, uh, complimentary as well. She says, child, explain to this man who will be a sage in time what we do tonight. <laughs> so right then, Marin explains all time exists. That's the truth beyond the legends the epochs tell. If the future did not exist now, how could we journey toward it? If the past does not exist still, how could we leave it behind us? In sleep, the mind is encircled by its time, which is why we so often hear the voices of the dead there and receive intelligence of things to come. Those who, like the mother, have learned to enter the same state while waking live surrounded by their own lives even as the Abraxas perceives all of time as an eternal instant. Oh, man. So much here. Uh, in context, uh, Marin's use of Abraxas is another term for the Yencreate, uh, specifically that it's a, uh, it's a Gnostic concept, and Severian's world might be casually Gnostic, but the witches are doctrinal Gnostics. So it seems, uh, now, yep. Yep. Yeah, and the, the Abraxas is an interesting term uh, in Christian syncretism earliest reference that we have of this term is from Christian catalogers of heresy. Uh, Bishop Arrhenius, writing in the late second century, said that the Abraxas was, quote, the unbegotten father, the tippy top of the cycle of eons and archons that finally create the first heaven from which there is another series that creates the second heaven, and a process continues until 365 heavens are created. And obviously, this sort of Gnosticism is deeply in line with the concept of, of true myth in Hamlet's Mill, in which true myth is ultimately a metaphor for cosmology. And I'm going to try to keep this at a high level. The earliest named Christian Gnostic teacher was Valentinius, who lived uh, for most of the second century, but it might have been you know, an, an earlier providence and might be referred to in mm. Paul's epistle, First uh, Timothy, where it says, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, and also pay no heed to knowledge falsely so called, which by professing it, some have deviated from the faith. The point is that the abrastic is the Gnostic vernacular equivalent of the increate. And as well as I can, I'm, I'm suppressing making this a Gnostic slash Hamlet's Mill chapter. <laughs> so, ostensibly, 
this description of Marin about time is merely the Einsteinian concept of all time as existing simultaneously and merely being a matter of direction from our perspective. And honestly, this must be presumed to be true for time travel to exist at all. Yeah, However, some way or another. Yeah. Right. However, I think she's talking about something quite different. Like I said, uh, where, where she talks about the mother, the Kamehian, being in a state where she can access all her time while awake. Yeah, that's what it seems to be, yeah. Yeah, the, the, in the, sleep, the mind is encircled by its time, by the mind's time, which is why we so often hear the voices of the dead there. Yeah, so it's more about, it seems like the Kumean can perceive all these different times. Of and herself. Apparently of herself. And we're going to find out why. That's why they have to go to this creature on the star that can remember all kinds of things. But that's, we'll get there. But um, then what's weird is that she can actually take other people with her. Like that's. Yeah. That's, or she create that, um, recreate that world. Right? right. And that's the other question that I always wondered. Like for a long time, I thought, well, they don't actually travel here. They're just kind of going back to view it because the whole thing about like the the sort of way that the dust comes back and whatnot. It just, it, it seemed such dreamlike to me in a certain way, but I'm, I'm not so sure that's the case anymore. But I wondered about that. Like, does she actually take you there or does she just help you see what's going on? I think she, but they apparently go there. Cause like, yeah, I mean, children can actually grab out the plunge. So, yeah. Yeah. But he's, I don't know. I, maybe we should, maybe we should, before I start theorizing, maybe we better get there, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah, I have so I have a lot of different ideas about what's going on there. But I will say too, one thing, and I'll say it here so I don't forget it, but one thing about this description, it also makes me wonder. I've often thought, oh, the Cumaean, when he sees her in her true form, it's like a snake. But now I wonder, is like, is she really something else, or is she a human who just when you see all of her different parts existing at the same point, she does look like a snake because you just see in like traces <laughs> like you yeah. literally see like you know yeah well it's something Flashes like slaughterhouse like five right um we were talking about the way the uh the, the aliens see humanity where they yeah. seem just to make a, a long trail yeah yeah Maybe. and i was wondering that yeah. there could be something to that too so. so there was not a lot of breeze that night but severian notices that even that the little breeze that was there has stopped so dorcas's voice just seems to boom in the palace she says is that what this woman you call the Kamehian will do then? Will she go into trance like a medium in a seance? Marin seems to imply that is something that she theoretically could do, but she won't. She cannot. She is very old, but this city was devastated whole ages before she came to be. Only her own time rings her, for that is all her mind comprehends by direct knowledge. To restore the city, we must make use of a mind that existed when it was whole. Ah, so let me try to work out what this means. Marin seems to be saying that the only way the Kamehian could speak with the voice of the dead is if that person lived during her lifetime, right? Seems to be, yep. Right, so naturally, normally she could, but not in this case, yep. for a variety of reasons. And it's it's like she has a memory like Severian's, but she knows everything that's happened and she can spool it out like Severian does. It, you know, it's, it's a matter of memory. And because of that, in order to answer Hildegard's questions, they need a mind that has access to the time, you know, the specific time of the mind that they want to contact, which now, which I guess is existed before 
uh, the command was born, right? And the next question that seems to come up is, well, does it just, are we just talking about anything that happened during the time you were alive? Which seems like that's what they're saying. Yeah. And not, yeah. it doesn't have to be something that you actually experienced. Right. Right. Like, exactly. That's the, the way oh, I was Oh, you think, first. really? Yeah, you think? Well, I think so, because otherwise it's implying that whatever this thing in the star millions of light years away was, it's saying it has to be something that that mind in that star actually experienced. And well, that's okay. where I get confused about. All right, I, I have a theory about that. Well, it, so if you're thinking that's Severian. That no, 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 no. That is often the thought. I do not believe that that's Severian. That doesn't make any sense at all. Unless Severian is sitting Unless there, it was like, it's his son that they're. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like literally, like that was the star. I don't think that's what it is, but it does no. seem like there's the way I took it was that, no, you just, you got to have some mind that's alive at the time. That was, it seems like it's hard, hard to tell. Yeah. But that, like you said, they need a mind, you know, that can access the specific time that they want to contact. They're conjuring ghosts, but it's, really a matter of communicating across time. They aren't connecting with a specter of a mind in the present. They're going to reach across time, contact a, a mind in its own time in the past. I know I'm not really clarifying anything here. So the comedian says, in the world? No, yet such a mind exists. Look where I point, child, just above the clouds. The red star there is called the fish's mouth. And on its one surviving world, there dwells an ancient and acute mind. Marin, take my hand, and you, Badger, take the other. Torturer, take the right hand of your sick friend and Hildegrin's. Your paramour must take the sick woman's other hand and Marin's. Now we are linked, men to one side, women to the other. Yeah, they begin the chaos, which yep. is, feels a lot like uh, Christmas Inn, which yeah. we discussed about, right? Yep, and yep, yep. So let's figure out, see if we can figure out this fish's mouth part, because frankly, that goes in a lot of directions. They can only do all this when that star is in view in the sky. Uh, I think the star is Fomalhaut, uh, which is called, known as fish's mouth. Um, so a lot of, there's been a lot of speculation that maybe this is Severian's star. This is the white fountain. But mm -hmm. I think this could only be true if the, you know, that white fountain has a planet orbiting around it. So let's put that aside and let's assume that this ancient and acute mind is not some version of Severian because I, even I don't like the everyone is Severian theories. Maybe it's just some very old, very omniscient mind. Maybe it's a machine that they have running constantly, constantly, constantly. And it's been running for eons for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. It's basically like as if you had a, a, a living Kamehian, but it's something that all of the Kamehians can draw upon if they need to. So let me think about this a little. Um, we have a mind on the planet orbiting the red star Fish's Mouth. I feel like there is a consensus that the star Fish's Mouth is known. It, it doesn't mean it's true, but I think we should go over why it's believed to be known. There's a star, brightest star in the Southern Pisces constellation. Southern Pisces, the Southern Fish, a dwarf, red, a red dwarf star called Foam Al Hut, which means mouth of the fish. Actually, it literally means mouth of the whale. But honestly, I doubt it, that matters here. Mm -hmm. It's the mouth of the fish of the constellation. It's also, according to Ptolemy, a star in the constellation Aquarius, the water bearer. So it is sort of a mediator between the constellations. 
I think Meteor Gatelier are intended associations, as I've said before. Um, also, Fomohot is a relatively close to us, only 25 light years away. But in, say, you know, 30,000 years, just picking a random number uh, as how far Severian is in our future, it'll be around 65 light years away. Interestingly, since we've been talking about a, a planet around Fomohot, this star was the first to have a believed exoplanet that was directly observed. And that was 26 years after the publication of Claude the Conciliar. <laughs> so clearly, Wolf had been doing some post-historical research. <laughs> and since then, its status as an actual exoplanet has been cast in significant doubt. But who cares? Now, the Kamean says there's a mind on this star's sole planet, an ancient acute mind. On the Earth list and Reddit, B Sharp, Lee Berman, has long associated Fomohat with both the Jurupari, whose image Agia was scratching on the floor of Agilis's cell, and the thing in the Manapes cave, yeah. and the Ouroboros, whose myth uh, Dorcas mentioned when the people walk into his mouth thinking it's a cave, because the Jurupari is also a kind of fish. And the Jurupari of Amazonian mythology, in one story, opens his mouth, tricking some youths into thinking he's a cave. And that is a lot to connect. So I like that. Good on you, Lee. However, Lee has not been able to develop the association between the Jurupari myth, the cave, the Megatherian, and the star to an extent that I could draw a narrative from it. Now, I could develop a narrative where the mind on Fulmohad is a megatherian and the thing in the man-ape cave, but that is just writing an entire novel without clarifying how anything has to do with Severian. <laughs> but if you're interested, his theory can be found by searching the Earthlist or Reddit. Now, back to other theories. Imagining this mind as a branch off from Severian is enticing. It's, it's not like Apopuncha itself would not require a great deal of inductive reasoning by the reader to figure it out if Wolf had never written Earth of the New Sun. But a simpler solution, I think, and I'm I'm looking for a simpler solution because as far as I can tell, Wolf did not more clearly identify it. A simpler solution is that, like I said, it's not even a mind at all. Which would be weird, too, for them to say, this is how this works, and now we're going to do something that just isn't even like that at all. Yeah, but, well, it's, but, it's like an ancient AI. Uh, you know, they can, we, we call them minds as well. We call them intelligences. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Right? Yep. yep. And so, so they use this ancient AI to use all kinds of their witchy abilities, and that ancient AI has been running, you know, since the time of Apopuncho, who was buried in his house, gathering data on all the major events uh, in, in the world and, and all of the different times as well, all of the different timelines. So it, you know, perhaps collects and collates all the lives of all the Kameans people. So if we're going to construct, to infer, to induce how this mind the Kamean is referring to works to come up with a something concrete, then this makes the most sense to me. I don't recall this solution ever being theorized before, so I'm trademarking it. It definitely simplifies things. The next issue I think that needs to be covered is Apupunchao. Now, because everyone is listening to us has read Earth of the New Sun, it's confirmed that this fellow, the Kamean, is going to resurrect his Severian himself in one sense or another. But I wonder, after anyone has read that coda to this book, whether they're able 
to put themselves back into the mindset where they were, where they're trying to grapple with how unclear it was when the Book of the New Sun was all they had. How could it be, as Severian claimed, that the tomb in the necropolis was his own and that this fellow entombed in Earth's deep history and seemingly obliterated at the end of the Claude Conciliar could also be Severian? And that, friends, is what is expected from us in this book. I truly think it is not possible to comprehend the greater backstory of this novel, which I think Wolf fully imagined, without inductive reasoning. Deduction is just not enough. You cannot eliminate the possible until only the necessary remains. You are expected to tell some kind of little story. Um, I had this uh, same conversation on separate occasions with Mark Aramini and with another person online about this. This other person said, no, I don't think the story can only be deduced. So eventually we got around to discussing the first Severian, as I always do. And he eventually said, well, I think Severian was wrong about the first Severian and his past, which of course diverges from our Severian in key places. And I said, well, then at least we agree that inductive reasoning is necessary to understand this book because I'm reading the last chapter of Citadel of the Tark deductively, and I'm taking what Severian says, and I'm eliminating the possibilities and that contradict the passage, and you're reading it inductively. You're concluding that Severian was mistaken. And to his credit, this person said, fair point. <laughs> so <laughs> we need to, this, here we are. We need to read this inductively. Um, what do you think? Is this the place to, to end this story, Craig? I think as we... far as this part goes, we we started to lay out some stuff about the Cumaean. We started to lay out some stuff about the mechanics of this situation. And yeah, what we know about Apu Punchau, we're going to see a few things. And there are some maybe hints in what happens with what Severian sees as things start to come back a bit. But really, the most we get is going to be earth of the new sun like because the rest of this chapter is very short and everything else that we're going to be doing is basically just trying to figure out well what can we what could we figure out from calling this guy epi punchow and that he lives in a stone town in some hills which might be machu picchu or might be like machu picchu or in something kind of incan but maybe not <laughs> you know i mean we're we're gonna we're gonna run up against a whole lot of questions like that so um so let's talk about yeah. So this Apu Puncha guy. Let's let's try and talk about him just from what we could know from this from this particular book all this by itself. Chapter, yeah. And what we get is his name, okay. and what we can guess about him as maybe an Incan figure, like because that's kind of what I always assumed here is that this is some kind of Incan leader, and that we're in, if not actually Machu Picchu. Something a mm -hmm. lot like Machu Picchu. Yeah, maybe well, even one of the many, one of the other stuff, right? right one of the right. other major and cities. possibly even something like far in the beginning of Inca's beginnings, like something that mm -hmm. you know where maybe the Incan Empire came because of all of the secrets that Apu Punchao would come give all these people, which is eventually kind of what we get in Earth and New Sun, it seems right. like to me at least. But I think it's very possible guess. this could be like 1000 AD and I have my right. I have a lot of right. reasons. Right. Right. And if you look online, there's a lot of people who argue about whether 
Apupuncha happens in between our time and Severian's time, or mm-hmm. I, I don't, I, I feel like it's, it's gotta be given the South American stuff, given the name, mm-hmm. given everything here. It just seems like, it seems like a whole lot of work whilst going through to suggest without ever coming out and saying this is South American and things you might recognize only to say, no, I really mean something totally different, which he, right. he's done things <laughs> like that before, but I, I don't think that's what this is. Yeah. So, yeah. I will point out. Yeah. I mean, you could go to the library back in 1983. Yeah. And have looked up Apu Punchal and found out all kinds of things about Apu Punchal, right? Yeah. Uh, they've already told us his name means the head of the day. Uh, he's, uh, it's another name for the sun God Inti. Yep. which was the official religion of the yep. Incas until the culture and empire was toppled, uh, yep. probably by the European cold and flu viruses. Inti was the sun, and he represented order and justice. Inti was married to the moon, Koya, or Mamakilia, who was the patroness of time. So here mm-hmm. we have a picture of Severian. Guild of the Seekers of Truth and Penitence, and Valeria, who was the mistress of the Atrium of Time. And in th- this, it reminds me of the analogy of the Greek god of the sun, Hyperion, whose name means he who goes before. He married his sister, Titanus Thea, and his son was the god Helios. So Apupunchal also has a son, Manco Kapak, and a daughter, uh, Mama Otsilo, who married each other, after a worldwide flood and repopulated the earth. In other tellings, uh, Mama Cleo was Apupunchal's sister and therefore Manco Kapak's aunt. And, and they, by the most common stories, uh, emerged from a cave at Lake Titicaca, which bears an uncanny resemblance to Lake Diaturna. So for me, Craig, all these mythical threads are interwoven into Severian's story and Thecla's and Thea's and Valeria's. Machu Picchu, as you said, was one of the holy places dedicated to Apuponchao. Inti was said to have foretold a death that would end the dynasty of the sun's descendants in the Incan Empire. And also all the Incans, since they were descended from Inti. In other words, like the conciliator, he preached the coming of the new sun and the destruction of earth. Another parallel to the Commonwealth is that Incans had to be purified just to travel between cities to intercities, you know, just like the roads are closed in the Commonwealth. And now the veneration of Inti, of Apupunchao, has not gone away. Inti seems to have been a holy trinity, one of whom was Inti's son, Manco. Catholic Quechua people today often associate Inti with Christ or with God the Father. The festivals that honor Inti, the Inti Rema, were celebrated with animal sacrifice and ritual dance, and they were originally held in June and now are held in May or June, so they always coincide with the Feast of Corpus Christi. Inti is the son of the creator of the world. The point is that having Severian go back into deep time to become the originator of the NT religion, the religion of Apupunchao, is as much a Christological reference as Severian changing water into wine. 
So I don't want to get into a, a debate with uh, with Mantis on here about the location because you know we can take that up when we get to Earth and the New Sun in a few years. But I should say that Apu Punchao's placement, Severian as the potentially origin of that religion, all this for me just makes the idea that this does not take place, say, around 1000 AD or earlier, but instead in our possibly distant future. For me, this just makes that construction difficult to sell. Mm -hmm. It makes it hard for me to accept just on a, a plot level as much as it frustrates me thematically. But we don't have to worry about that, as I say, until the impossibly distant future when we cover those chapters. So, sheesh, <laughs> Craig. You know what? We're not even halfway through this chapter. <laughs> Been helping my son with uh, one of his college papers, and he was complaining that he's already hit his word limit on one and still hasn't started saying what he wants to say. And I'm like, yep, you got to get, got to get all that throat clearing out of the way. Then you feel better. Then you know what's going on. Yeah. It's pretty much, well, we're doing a lot of throat is, clearing with this. One. This is the big throat clearing uh, episode. Yeah. All right. So yeah, that's a lot of setup. And then we're going to actually get to the fun little encounter along with some, some trippy visuals that we get beforehand, <laughs> but which might actually give us some insight into what's going on maybe when we time travel here, because we we're not just doing it from the walking paths that we normally get. We're actually doing some very different crazy stuff. Um, but yeah, there's going to be a lot there and I've got some questions and I think some maybe interesting conclusions about what it means that Severian halfway through this book connects to Apu Punchao. And I think the big thing of course, is that we finally get Severian clearly identified with someone who is pretty clearly a sun god that you can yeah like he's at the very least he's called the head of day severian you know there's another guy over there he snaps and then all of a sudden severian is grappling with a hildegren who is just doing him <laughs> which all of which is to say i think you're supposed to realize at the end of this book the big takeaway is hey wait a minute is severian this old sun god somehow I think that's supposed to be. Is that possible to happen? I think. Is that. I think so. I think you're supposed to yeah. at least have enough here to suggest it. Now, I got to admit, when I first read it, I don't think I caught any of that. I was like, that was weird. Let me go yeah, read I'm the just, next I was mess. just so glad to get through <laughs> I was like, the conciliator. Yep. Yeah. But I do think, I mean, we're halfway through the four books. I do think Wolf intended us to really see some kind of identification here. Um, at least in in the way the structure of the book goes, but we'll talk about that. That's where we got to. But how can to... we? But how would we complain? Yeah, but how would we ever have justified that claim? I Only mean, I, from... I can, I'm, I'm imagining someone making this pitch on the Earth list, and I can imagine all the people saying it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't. There's no reason to assume that. No, and we can you know. we can talk about how the actual sentences work when we get to the very end. But just from the fact of Apuncha being head of day. And then the way that the only way to me, the very end of the chapter literally makes sense from what Severian describes is at the one moment he sees Hildegren fighting with some guy. Then all of a sudden he says, I was hit in the head in the scramble, which may or may not be yeah. what really happened. It may instead be that, you know, the explosion or whatever happened. And next thing is Hildegren's got his arm around him, but there's another Hildegren fighting with someone he can't see. And that's pretty much where it ends. So yeah. the image that you get all of a sudden is 
Severian sees Hildegren and this other guy who looks like his his tomb thing smack something happens in his head and then all of a sudden the other guy's gone but now there's a Hild- Hildegren with his arm around Severian right. but it's That's all enough it, it, it's all it's also obvious once you know that once you true. know it's true but i think well i mean i think he very much was intending it to be very weird and but if you pay attention to okay at the very least what is it that i would see if wolf is describing you do have that thing of okay the parallel of hildegren fighting with that dude smack now that dude's gone but there's a second hildegren on me that's enough to make you think wait a minute did i just you have no idea what it is. Did I just become that other guy? Did he just become yeah. me? Did I just trade places with him? I mean, who knows? It could be all those kinds of things. It's never clear. Like, there's not yeah, enough that's here what, to yeah, say. That's, oh, man, you're making me think of all the alternative theories in a world without Earth. Without oh, yeah. The, all those things the the are sun. possible. But at the very least, I think it raises the question of, yeah, is Severian this head of day guy somehow, too? We don't know whether he just became him, whether he became him in the past, whether something else weird is going on, whether he just looks like him a lot. We don't know, you know, but right. but I do think there's enough in there if you're not like just rushing to say, get on to the next chapter where you actually explain some of this stuff, which I'm sure is how <laughs> yeah. I read it. And most people there's enough there to, I think to at least get that, but no, no explanation yeah. for it. But at the very least to make you think, are those the same dudes? What would that mean? Yeah. So, um, well, we'll we are there. going to explain, we're going to try and explain it all try. <laughs> next, next episode. <laughs> so, but there's still a lot to chew on here. There's still a lot for us to, to know. Oh, yeah. I, 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 I feel like the, the Kumean, is even more confusing to me now. The more you look at it, the more weird and Im- and paradoxical the whole thing. Yeah, becomes. and also just because I can't put her on a side exactly. Like that's, I feel like if I'm thinking in terms of the books being set up between humanity versus Megatherians or Hyroduels versus Megatherians or Enere trying to help the Hyroduels versus the Megatherians, then I feel like it can line people up on different sides. At this point, I'm not exactly sure where the Cumaean would fit in any of that. So maybe it is just that the witches are just, they're just doing their own thing. Like they're- Well, maybe it's like, maybe it's like Game of Thrones where it's not about yeah, a side. It, you have everybody- maybe Scrambling. Yep. It could be a free yep, for all. It may be, but I definitely think that the Cumaean- is in some way for whatever reason she's doing her own thing and she even does have yeah. we haven't we didn't talk about it a lot but she does make that one sort of cryptic comment at some point where she's like once you have enough wisdom you don't think you can really control anything right yeah, which is yeah. very different from how the hyroduels act right they're all about we're going to manipulate the entire race for evolution and whatnot but she's got a much more i mean i don't necessarily want to call it buddhist but it's definitely much more of a hands off kind of thing she's like yeah well it's a crazy it's a, it's a crazy world that severian is walking in when a being like the kamean is just a bit player mm-hmm. oh yeah right so that's that's where i i feel like she comes down that she maybe there's not in the book enough information to for wolf to actually tell us what she is and she really is just another player in a much more complicated world where there are lots of Mm -hmm. other things going on. That may well be it. Yeah. The fact that she knows about this other creature or mind or whatever on FOMO hat, maybe that's, she's heard of it. It's a legendary. We've all heard about him. We don't really know anything about him. Maybe it really is 
a point to say, yep, and there's all this other stuff going on in the world. And Which, she's not checking back with the home office. Maybe if she had just done that, they said, hey, okay, we've all, we, we just, there's a lot of things we got to read you in yeah. on about this guy. Which <laughs> does a couple things for the book. It makes you think, okay, well, maybe this whole like big central drama of humanity's evolution, maybe it's not that important to the world. Like you get the sense sometimes that, oh, this is what all of history is about is humanity mm-hmm. going. But if there's all this other stuff going on, maybe it really is just, oh, that's just the humans doing their thing. And that's yeah. weirder because that means that all the religious imagery and whatnot is not quite so universally powerful as it suggests that it is. And, or maybe, maybe not, uh, but. Well, but, I mean, yeah, you got to think of it from a Christian point of view where, where, you know, events that, that turn the whole world happen in one small backwater Palestine. Yeah. So I mean, it's, I do think that if you bring in all this stuff with like, oh yeah, by the way, there's all this. Like if you say like, okay, the Christian story is happening here, but also there's all this other stuff that doesn't care a bit about God. That's weird. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's like, yeah. that's very weird. Okay. Yeah. We know the politics of, of Askia to mm-hmm. the North, but there's a whole nother planet going on yeah. out there. There are other, you know, underwater forces who are, you know, playing their own game. Yeah. 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 Strange. Well, what do you know? <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> We would like to hear from you. We want to hear from you all about our errors, all about the things we missed and how we could have, you know, turned the die 90 degrees and, <laughs> and got a different perspective on it. Or So just reach out to us with your compliments, your comments, your corrections, your complaints on Facebook, Reddit, email, Twitter, YouTube, Master Patron, Slack channel, on the Patreon channel itself via email, Instagram. However you do it, please do it. And if you're enjoying it, and by now, if you've got to this point and you aren't enjoying it, um, please reach out to us and tell us what the heck is wrong with you. <laughs> but assuming you are enjoying it, then you know, let your wolf-free friends know about it by whatever means it is that you do that kind of thing. And until you hear from us next, and we'll still be sitting here in the stone town, mm-hmm. may the Moira favor you. I feel like I should say adios or something since we're back in. But I don't know what the actual <laughs> no, that's that would not be the Incan word at all. I don't know what I'm thinking. What's the what would the Incan word for goodbye be? I don't know. I'll, I don't know Peru. Yeah, I don't know. I'll the, go find the, out. The... I'll find out and edit it in. Tu pananchis kama. Tu pananchis kama.
feel free to edit freely. And if you want to move a whole thing, you know, you just chop it up so that things go in all sorts of directions. I don't care. As long as it's my voice saying it, that's okay. Eventually makes fun of her and she gives up and admits Hildegrin. I've got a dog in the background. Hello. <laughs> you done, kid? I'm watching the, the my daughter's the dog. requirement that it be these people is pivotal. Let's try again. Is pivotal. <laughs> that, that it be these people is pivotal. All right. Hey, sorry hey. about that. I just realized I uh, <laughs> like, had to pee. Done that before we started. <laughs> just forgot. So. Sometimes we never know. I don't like this. So we already talked about it. We already just dispensed with this. God, wow. I've got so much garbage. Um, yeah. I, I think he doesn't work for Bodeless exclusively. I knew it. <laughs> okay, so let's click start. You tried to be nice about it, but he says, hey, you guys need to get back on it. <laughs> yeah, I know you're doing it for fun, and it's a, it's a passion <laughs> project. But... <laughs> well, you know, it's just this job, it's not the time anymore. Because mm -hmm. there was a while where it just seemed to take up all the time. It's just that it, it takes up a lot of attention mm -hmm. and forces me to think about it. A lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I got that, you. So time that I would normally spend thinking about what I'm going to say here. So, yeah. no, I get it. When mine actually gets busy, it's kind of the same thing. It just I always what I used to say about my job is that once you've taught the courses a few times, it leaves a ton of extra emotional and intellectual energy for anything else you want. <laughs> um, but yeah, lately it's just like, yeah, it's just been just exhausting. Just yeah. And oh, and also she got me a copy of October 1965, Sir Magazine. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's fun. I put that in, in Instagram. So. so I'm curious the rest of that one. Is that is it like a Playboy or is it just suggested? It's very much it's a... very much like that. It's a you know, they have they have a centerfold and they have a base it's not like it's more like Playboy than Penthouse. Gotcha. Um had an interest. Had, does have an interesting um, uh, article about uh, Ford in the Le Mans. So um, interesting. Well, I mean, even I mean, Playboy published some really high profile stuff and I mean, uh, high profile like, interviews. And they were back yeah. in the interviews and fiction, and I mean, yeah, yeah, they they yeah they got like Robert Anton Wilson actually worked as an editor for penthouse for a while right um, oh yeah that's where the big and, money was in these yeah. short stories yeah yeah uh, right. yeah in fact yeah Jack Jack Dan mentioned that right yeah it's about how how if you could get them in if you get a story in one of their magazines you get paid like two thousand dollars yep yep but uh in this one it's got a it has an illustration for for uh well story the the dead man I don't really think it much applies to the story. Yeah, it's got a a buxom girl uh, and a guy. I guess going. I I don't know. I guess he's well, going I'm on sure. his way to heaven, to yeah. the afterlife or something. I'm sure in that one, it's that they wanted was full on Frazetta stuff. So yeah, they, yeah. Well, it's not really Frazetta. It's not right, fantasy. I mean, it's more like just, it's it's more like a like a modern war kind of uh, right, right, right. But yeah, I'm sure anyone looking at that illustration say, oh, wow, I got to get this story. Check out this story. It was like, what the heck is. 
This is puzzling. It's like you have to search <laughs> to find the eroticism in this one. Yeah. <laughs> a guy eaten by a, a crocodile. So, <laughs> but yeah, that was really nice. Very, very, very nice. So very, now I have, I have a, a, you, a, a, a literary you, artifact that Gene Wolfe didn't have. Yeah. <laughs> because Rosemary wouldn't allow that one in the house. That's, so. that's hilarious. That's awesome. You're, you're, you're inching towards. I don't know if you, I don't know if it's possible to have a complete collection, but there, yeah, you are inching towards, it. <laughs> you know, I, I don't have all of his, uh, his first publications, obviously. Mm. Um, but I'm getting, I've, I got almost all of his, um, uncollected stuff so far. So not quite, not quite. That is really cool. Uh, weren't there three of you a minute ago? And Marin goes off on, oops. <laughs> 